This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, along with Terry and Becca. The gang is gathered. Holy cow, President Trump did it. Brought three prisoners home. He's getting all the credit. He's taking all the credit. It's a big deal. I mean, that's a huge deal. Yeah. I'm telling you. Read, fact, several, read several things that probably China has a yeah. lot to do with this. <laughs> Kim Jong-un has met with the president. Yeah, twice. King of China, whatever his name is. He, president Xi. Xi? Is it president? I think it is. Did he change it? Because, I mean, he basically has a, a life term now. Yeah, he does. He's... But uh, yeah, they've met twice. Yeah, and they're just in the last couple, last week or two, they met a couple times, and so they feel like China's in there. Like, just let them go. I mean, it's just well, no, yeah. I think I, I think we're not hearing the whole China side of this. No, but, but apparently, maybe it's because President Trump put pressure on China. He's put pressure on Rocket Man Kim Jong Un, and now that's going to now they're going to have a meeting. But last night, three prisoners released by North Korea, and it's seen as. A major coup, a major victory for President Donald Trump. So that's pretty cool news. That's got to be. That's got to make you feel good. Ford's having a little trouble. They can't get the parts for their big truck. One of their suppliers had a fire, yeah. and because of that, the F one hundred and fifty has stopped production today. The most popular vehicle Ford has, they can't produce it because they need their widgets. These key components. It's a molding of some kind of. Yeah, fiberglass probably, but some sort of part of the truck. So uh, several companies use it, but Ford really relies on this uh, supplier. So they're, uh, they're down for a day or two. We'll see what happens. Do you there. know what? Hey, maybe that's maybe you have a company picnic. <laughs> maybe you have everyone clean the shop. Yeah. The, well, yeah, that could happen too. Have you ever been to a, a manufacturing plant? Um, no. It's a big deal. Like when that when that line stops, I think it was like I went to the Honda plant. They were a client of mine. Ten thousand dollars a minute, I think. Mm-hmm. Every time that line stops, it's like ten grand, mm. and uh, to stop for days. And of course, oh, there's oh, somebody oh. that keeps track of all that. Yeah. So at the end, how much money did we did we lose? And you get this big total. Crazy, crazy. So crazy stuff going on in the world. Just count yourself uh, lucky to be where you are. Um, let's get to the rest of the headlines with Terry. Terry, what else are we covering today? So along with the three U.S. citizens that were released and brought back to the United States are being medically evaluated at the moment. The president was there at 2 o'clock in the morning Eastern time to greet them on the tarmac, along with the vice president and the secretary of state. Yeah. The secretary of state just barely got back from North Korea. He's going to have to sleep in Can't now. imagine his jet lag. Oh, can you imagine? Man, well, he's going to be cranky Pompeo's been doing a great job. He yeah. goes over there, brings down three Americans. President Trump, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, will not meet in at the demilitarized zone on the Korean peninsula, the president told reporters Wednesday. Trump ruled out the DMZ as a possible location for an upcoming summit between him and between him and Kim, which is... Yeah, him and Kim. Rhymes. That'd be a t-shirt right there. <laughs> Even though he previously expressed interest in meeting there for its representative, important, and lasting symbolism... He goes, it will not be there, said Trump when asked whether the, take, the talks will take place at the DMZ. Trump also told reporters that the date and location of his meeting with Kim would be announced within three days. Oh, is it is it at the Trump is it the Trump Hotel in Singapore? 
It's they're saying likely in Singapore, but yeah, maybe if there's a Trump hotel uh, there, can you imagine? Maybe there's a golf a golf course nearby, and he can yeah. go hit a few. Oh, Kim, and oh, that'd yeah. be fun to watch Kim and him playing golf. You heard of ping pong diplomacy? This is golf this diplomacy. Would be great, it'd be great. Senator John McCain on Wednesday urged the Senate to reject Gina Haspel, uh, President Donald Trump's nominee, to be CIA director. I believe Gina Haspel is a patriot who loves our country and has devoted her professional life to its service and defense, said McCain, who is uh, home in Arizona since December as he undergoes treatment mm. for brain cancer. However, Ms. Haspel's role in overseeing the use of torture by Americans is disturbing. Her refusal to acknowledge torture's immorality is disqualifying. I believe the Senate should exercise its duty of, of advice and consent and reject this nomination. McCain, who himself was tortured when he was served as a prisoner of war in Vietnam, has long opposed those tactics. If you watched any of the hearing, which I no. guess if you love C-SPAN, no, I, well, it was I had, there. I actually have a life. Well, there's that, too. Um, the Republicans wanted, uh, did you do anything li- illegal? No. Okay, moving on. The Democrats, let's go to the moral. It was, was it morally wrong to torture? And she kept going back to the, it's not, it wasn't illegal. We did our jobs. and they're like, But it wasn't moral. And it was just, there was no answer Holy on the God. moral side because she was doing her job. I would, well, I would just ask, so hold on, let me get this straight. So Congress is going by morality now? Yeah. Since when? You could see from the opening comments of the chair of the committee, he's like, this is about if she can do the job. We're not going to re-legislate history. This has been yeah. dealt with and everything. And then the, the minority leader, the Democrat, stepped in and goes, you know, the moral question here is important. So just from the opening I like that they're gavel. talking morality. I right. just wish we were doing it everywhere. Well, situational morality. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's how it works. So we'll see where she goes. She was very um, forthcoming, but in a shifty way was kind of the explanation because she's, you know, yeah. a spy. Yeah, because she uh, <laughs> is really good at waterboarding. So it might have been interesting if I wanted to watch four hours of a hearing on C-SPAN, yeah. which I didn't. Uh, Hawaii's Kilauea volcano could soon send boulders and ash shooting out of its summit crater in the kind of explosive eruption uh, displayed nearly a century ago, the risks will rise as lava drains from the summit crater down the flank of the volcano, and explosions could occur if the summit lava takes or summit lava lake drops so low that groundwater is able to flow into the conduit that feeds the magma to the, the crater. So, if water gets involved, it could be explosive. Oh boy! The magma would heat the water, sending steam into the air that would push any accumulated rocks out in an explosion. The U.S. Geological Survey said Wednesday. Don Swanson, a geologist with the Hawaii, Hawaii Volcano Observatory said the magma is likely to drop below the water table around the middle of the month. Scientists don't know how long after that an explosion could occur. Ooh. So this could get, you That's know, scary. Yeah. More than just taking out houses, you can now have projectiles. Okay. Yeah, that would be a bad So, day. Uh, I don't know, duck? Yeah, duck and cover. Let's go back to the old technique. Finally, a Louisiana man accused of stealing a John Deere front-end loader, then using it to ram trailers and vehicles in a Walmart parking lot, told police that he thought it was the end of the world and zombies were chasing him. Okay. This was in a court appearance. Sean Michael Stroud, 32, accused of stealing the front-end loader in the early morning hours of April 8th. Police say he then drove at the short distance to the Walmart where mayhem ensued. He uh, is accused of hitting two occupied vehicles, several utility trailers, and three unoccupied vehicles. Oh, wow. Police say that he had to put down, they had to put down spike strips to stop him 
in a nearby parking lot of a Nissan dealership after he fled in the front end loader. At the uh, police do, station. Do Cor- spike strips work on a front-end loader? <laughs> I don't know. This is odd. He goes, at the police station, court records say officers read him, him his rights. He then, you know, went on and on about zombies. Yeah. Oh, see, that zombie apocalypse. Yeah. It'll now, get you. The story, it, it didn't say if he was on something or if he's just, you know, naturally this way. But uh, well, either way. Yeah, something's not. <laughs> or was he, you know... Had he been affected by zombies? Could have been bitten. Who knows? That's a bad day. You know, I've always thought how fun it would be to take a front-end loader and just oh, yeah. go do whatever you want to do. Right. I've, I've done it. There's some people Video on games. my drive today that I wanted to front-end load. I had a police officer cut me off on the way to work. He just started merging into my you know lane. What? Chase him down. Chase him down. Really? Yeah. Is that the best move? That's what I would do. I just kind of moved away from him. He seemed we, erratic uh, at that hour. Oh. We had a, I don't know, a lot of people leaving town, I guess, for a vacation in trailers and motorhomes, all in the left lane. Wow. Yeah. Just hanging out in the left lane. Made me really bad. Matt, every time I pass him, I give him that look like, are you kidding me? Why are you going slow in the left lane? If you're going to go slow, go slow in any other lane but this lane. just pick one. This is my lane. (laughs) This is the fast lane. Oh, wow. Okay. So we've got a zombie apocalypse, and we've got all these other crazy things going on. President uh, Trump bringing home three Americans from three hostages. I guess they were all Americans. And uh, I'm telling you, stuff's happening, folks. It's happening. Up next, we're going to replay an interview where we're going to talk about libraries and the role libraries play uh, in this Internet age and all this high tech. Do we even need a library anymore? Interesting discussion straight ahead. Libraries. What visuals enter your mind when you hear the word library? Maybe an old curmudgeon shushing you. Maybe remember, you know, sitting on the floor as a child while listening to somebody read a story to you. Or maybe you think of hours of searching computers and bookshelves for an academic assignment. But is the library a thing of the past? The research may surprise you. A few months back, I spoke to Donald Barclay, who is the deputy librarian of the University of California, Merced. We discussed the health of libraries and their possible future. I began the interview by asking if we, as a society, needed to get rid of our libraries. Well, um, I don't think so. I hope not. Yeah, no, that'd be your um, job. Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm, it only has to last a few more years for me. <laughs> um, but uh, but it, know, it, I, I was it, kind of surprised. I, you know, I started looking at... At the num- when I started looking at the numbers, the best numbers we have, um, which are collected through um, an agency of the federal government about libraries, just showed that um, public libraries are getting more use than ever. That um, um, you know, going the the statistics really only go back to about the beginning of the internet, well, of the web, mm-hmm. um, and um, you know, early '90s and. They just showed a steady growth in the number of people using libraries throughout the whole Internet period. Um, and that, that kind of surprised me, actually. Um, and I, I found a similar sort of pattern in uh, academic libraries, although in academic libraries what you saw was people were not asking reference questions that dropped off. People were not um, 
using print materials and checking them out the way they had been. That mm. dropped off like 50% over 20 years. But um, what you did see were, were, peop- were students going to the library to, for the, to the physical space. And I think there's a couple of reasons why the library as a place, as a physical building, is still important. Um, it's like a community, right, of, of, yeah, of learning, of access to information? Exactly. It's, it's, a, it's a learning place. It's also in a, in a world where, you know, frankly, where there's so much concern about security and safety and things being locked down. I mean, I remember as a kid in Idaho living in Boise, I could ride my bike to the state capitol and walk in the state capitol building and walk around and nobody even looked at me. You know, right. nowadays, try that at the state capitol. Yeah. You know, you have to go through a metal detector, et cetera, et cetera. So, but libraries are the last place I know of where, in, in this country, where you can go and be somewhere and not have to spend any money and not have to have a reason to be there. Hmm. That's the true. La- I mean, as far as indoor places go. And that's why that's created a problem for some public libraries, which is an, uh, you know, a negative image of public libraries. If you go to a public library, especially in a big city, it's full of homeless people. Right. And that's something that has scared you know, some people away from libraries. But in spite of that, that negative perception, and you see that everywhere, there's even, you know, there's an episode of The Simpsons where Lisa goes to the Springfield Public Library and it's full of hobos. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's mocked like that. People are still using libraries, still going to the public library, because it's, it's, a, it's sort of the last free indoor public space where you can go. And it's also that place where you can find some peace and quiet. Mm. That's part of it. You know, there's not many places left where you can go and and not be distracted by everything that's going on. Of course, we carry distractions in our pockets um, that's hard to get away from. But but they're, they're kind of quiet distractions, aren't they? they you yeah. can just put your earphones in and quietly be distracted. So it's an interesting thing I heard you say. Um, more and more people – so more and more libraries are being built, according to your research. Also, more libraries are being used and accessed, except uh-huh. we're not checking out – the materials like we used to, that's been cut by half. Well, in public libraries. In public libraries, the, right. In public libraries, the checkouts have gone up. Oh, they've gone up. In, okay. In, in academic libraries, slightly. Okay. In academic libraries, they've gone down. Huh. Because so, yeah. in academic libraries, every, so much stuff is electronic. Right. Um, and students can access it from anywhere 24-7. Um, you know, and you know how students are, especially undergraduates, um, they don't necessarily plan things way in advance, and if yeah. they can get a an article online at midnight, they're going to use that. You know, that's that's a natural way for for people to operate. I wonder if it's a millennial thing too, um, because I, when I was writing my and and do, had had to do a lot of writing, I couldn't go to my office because then everyone would want me to work. So mm-hmm. I had to go, and I couldn't go home because my kids would be there, and I needed to yeah. write. So I would go to a library. But my son, and this was years ago. But my son, um, he he, when he needs to study, he doesn't study at home necessarily. He would go to a public library and sit there. And so it's I, I see it almost as I thought it would have been lost by that generation, but um, apparently the millennials like it as well. Yeah, I think one of the things, and I've heard this from some of my my colleagues, library colleagues, especially in librarians in bigger cities um, like San Diego, um, Los Angeles, um, students are either living in dorms or they're packed into apartments 
to save money. Right. And they can't study at home. Yeah. And the library is a place where they can go and study as long as they want. Now, you can go to Starbucks, you can go to Denny's, but you got to spend some money and, you know, sooner or later they're going to start looking at you funny if you don't buy anything. Right. And it's noisier. The you can go and stay there. Yeah. The, uh, the other thing that academic students use library for is that they get lots and lots of group projects now. And they have to have a place where five, four or five or six of them can come together and work. And the library is, you know, one of the only places on many campuses where they can really do that. And that's why we have a sort of a, a dichotomy in academic libraries is people come for quiet space, so you have to provide quiet space. But they also come to do group work, so you have to provide whiteboards mm. and tables and right. rooms and meeting where rooms. They can, where they can collaborate. And also I, the technology, too, is part of why people come to libraries. And I think, you know, maybe during the, the – you know, the, the, the early days of the web, you know, the first 10 years of the web, which is roughly, you know, the, the web was really launched in 92. It caught on in the national consciousness in a big way around 95, where, where it was really, you know, everybody was aware of it. And, but during those early years, libraries, public libraries especially, were a place we could go and get online. Right. And that was a big attraction. And that may have helped in a way save libraries through that period. Um, and, and, but people still go now, and, and libraries are doing you know, a lot of interesting things. Public libraries have you know, places for groups to meet. So there's a knitting club at the library. Uh-huh. There's a, you know, a, and it's a, free, it's a free meeting space, I think, because right. I used to need – I rented places out, and you, you could meet at the library, but it was just always hard to get one because it was free and everybody would go there. Right, right. But so they 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 do provide those kind of spaces. Um, that you know a lot of public libraries are doing special spaces just to appeal to teenagers. So they might a, a really nice public library might have a children's room, but they might also have a, a teenager's room huh. with plus, a lot of technology and and furniture and things that appeal to teenagers. Plus, one thing I've seen, and this seems to be like libraries fighting. The tech world, not fighting it, going with the flow is is the ability now to download uh, ebooks, to download mm-hmm. and download audible audio recordings of stuff, right. and to just yeah. so I can actually access my library's databases from home and download right. stuff. Yeah, and, and that's a big attraction too. There's, and that, that's been an interesting problem because um, there've been some struggles with publishers um, who. The publishers are still trying to figure out how to make money on ebooks, right? Um, and so there's been a struggle, and in some cases, publishers will not allow their front list books, the, their best sellers, right, out there, to be made available through library ebooks. So um, th- that's a pro- that's a struggle, especially for public libraries because they really deal in best sellers. You know, an academic library. You know, a best-selling academic book nowadays sells a thousand copies worldwide. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, l- academic libraries don't really have that problem so much. But a public library where everybody wants to read the latest, you know, Stephen King or John Gresham or, you know, Amy Tan, whoever, whoever, um, that that may be more of a struggle to get those kind of hot books on. Mm. Uh, on an ebook format. Joining us on the phone is Deputy Librarian of UC Merced, uh, University of California Merced campus, and he's um, he is the author of an article. Has the library outlived its usefulness in the age of internet? You'd be surprised. Donald Barclay, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So, um, 
the technology is making it so especially interestingly i loved uh when i was getting my doctorate i loved the ability to just research online get the materials i wanted and then have them either delivered to if i wanted the hard copy delivered to my university go pick them up there or sometimes i could even actually download the the pieces is this going is our libraries uh going to be more affected kind of just in the public library or more of the academic institutions? Where do you see both of them going? Well, that's an interesting question. I, you know, clearly the ebook is with us and, you know, you, you occasionally will read articles saying, well, oh, people don't like ebooks anymore. They're done with them. They're back on print. And I think that, um, you know that that there, we're always going to have print around. Right. It's a it's a different experience than reading an ebook, but I would argue that it's a very different experience to read a 2015 edition of David Copperfield than to read David Copperfield as a serial publication in in Britain when it was first published, right. or even reading it as a three decker novel. A different kind of tactile experience reading those things. Um, so, you know, the, the book will be around, and I think what we're going to see is that it's kind of I, – I use automobiles and horses as an analogy. We have automobiles. We still have horses. They're used for a lot of things, mostly for the experience, for, you know, recreationally, although there are places where horses serve real function, you know, where cars just don't work and horses do. And I think we'll always – print will sort of be like that, you know. Uh, most of our transportation will be – electronic, but we'll still use the book occasionally, or maybe even more than occasionally. Um, the other thing about the ebook, and I, you know, I have, I've had discussions with this, is people will say, well, you know, we don't, you know, ebooks, the experience, you know, it's just, it's not the same, it's not as good as reading a book, you can't annotate it, you can't flip through it like a book, uh, you know, and, and you'll, there have been studies where people interview college students, and the college students say, yeah, we prefer print to e um, and I think that I think there's some truth to that. The experience of the ebook lacks something, but it's also sort of using the car analogy. It's sort of like looking at the car in 1905 and saying, "Well, this is never going to replace the horse because this car, you know, it, it goes slow and it breaks down, and you know, yada yada." Well, cars have evolved, and I think the ebook experience will evolve a lot right. over time. Right. So I, I think that as e-book, the ebook reading experience gets better, people are going to be less likely to say, um, you know, I just don't like ebooks. I, I think also, on the other hand, though, um, the idea that everything's going to be on the internet. Well, there's a lot of obstacles to that, um, and the biggest one is copyright issues, and that's what I was talking about earlier yeah. about, you know, publishers not wanting their their A-list material to be electronically available through libraries anyway. And there's also concern about from publishers about, you know, of course, if I, if one electronic copy gets out there. And somebody copies it, you know, uh, then nobody's buying my my publication, and it's ruining me. So those are all those are all factors that are going to until they, those things get solved in some way, which they may never get solved. There's always going to be um, the desire to to keep at least some things from being electronic. We also have a big problem in in copyright terms, and you may have heard of something called the Hadi Trust which is a big online library. Um, it has something like 6 million full-text books that are hmm. totally available for people to, anyone to read. Wow. And, and they're mostly 
pre-1923 publications because those are out of copy. Right. Um, but what we have is a, a big gap from 1924 to the present, essentially, where, or well, at least until E really started to take over, where you've got all of these books that are out there, they, that they've actually been digitized. They could be made available. They're actually sitting in the Hathi Trust, but they can't be made available because they're still in copyright. And there's, even though maybe this book hasn't been published in 40 years and there's no market for it, clearing the copyright is impossible because, you know, it's impossible to figure out who owns it, um, et cetera, et cetera. Those things are going to be in copyright limbo for for years and years and years. I mean, until they, they finally come out of copyright, which could be, you know, 50, 60 years from now. That's true. There's the, there's the whole money side of this, isn't there, and the copyright side. And so – I mean, maybe I guess too. That was interesting because if uh, if I would sell a book and I wanted my books in the library system, which you would, that's mm-hmm. ten thousand books sold, right? I mean, to get one in each library, and there oh, might yeah. be two, so you could get yeah. twenty thousand books out there just by getting it in the library system. Which yeah, again, like you, you said, the average I think the average book sold is like a hundred books, right? Because there's hundreds well, of thousands of books every year. Well, scholarly books, you know, yeah. selling, you know, a few hundred copies is is doing okay nowadays. At least for a scholarly book. Obviously, popular books sell a lot more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can still sell. You know, Stephen King still sells millions. Uh, right. So popular writers. So going well. forward, I mean, they're going to have to get through a lot of, uh, I guess, a lot of these. Um, the financials behind it. Um, but in the end, like you were saying earlier, this, this is more of a community kind of center. This is becoming – libraries, it sounds like, will evolve a little bit more uh, at least for the next near future until they can fix uh, copyright in, infringement and, and uh, find a way to make money and still get them to the libraries. People will still be checking books out at a higher rate. Than normal. I mean, it's been going up apparently, not going down, yeah. which is what everyone was assuming. But yeah. the community side of it is also valuable. As a as a lib- as a kind of an expert in the field of library science, what I mean, there is a community you can't beat. Like you were saying, it's a safe place, and it's a quiet place and a place of learning. Yeah, yeah. I, well, yeah. I think that that a lot of communities value that. You know that that. Um, and, you know, you do have – in every community, you have a lot – you know, you tend to have a lot – that have libraries. You have a lot of library supporters, and people are, you know, in general, see the good of it. They, they uh, you know, they, they understand that it's more than – it's more than just about having access to books, that it's, it's – I think it still is a symbol of, of community. You know, one of the interesting stories about, about public libraries was – um, in New York City, right after 9/11, um, the public libraries were jammed. Huh. They, they were people were just crowding into them as you know as fast as they could, because it was a symbol of coming together in community. You know, right. it was a refuge from all this horror that was going on in their city, um, and I think that that still resonates with people. And you know, you can. You occasionally hear, you know, you'll hear somebody go, well, you know, the argument being, well, you know, why do we need libraries? We're spending public dollars on this. Everything's on the Internet. People have computers at home. They're just hangouts for hobos. Um, so, you know, th- there is that, that argument. A- and 
you know, if you want to take a totally objectivist argument, you'd say, well, you know, if libraries were really that valuable, they could make it in the free market. But I think a lot of people, most people in this country anyway, don't see it that way. They see them as symbols of, of, of community. And, and the, even though public libraries are usually governmental organizations, they're almost always city or at most county organizations. Right. So they're, they're not, you know, it's not like the federal government. The federal government has libraries, of course, but it's not like every town has a federal library. You know, it's not people from D.C. telling you what to do. It's your own community. And you can go to the city council meeting or you can go to the county uh, commissioner's meeting and speak about the library and tell them what you think about it. So I think that that, that sense of it being a symbol of, of local control and you know, people having a voice in things, I think that, that still resonates with people. Yeah. And, and certainly as a place to come together, you know. And, and, but unfortunately, you know, there, there are places where, in my own town, you know, they, they, they don't take very good care of the library. You know, they, they, um, they don't spend a lot of money on it. They, you know, it's kind of run down. It's not in the best place. You know, and that's kind of sad to see. But there are other, lots of communities, plenty of communities we can point to and go, you know, where libraries are well-maintained and they have great programs and they really appeal to the community. And, you know, if there's, you know, if there are a lot of Hmong speakers in a town, you know, a good public library will have things for them. Or if there's, you know, um, all, you know a lot of places, a lot of Spanish-speaking people, they have really strong programs and collections that appeal to that community. You know, those kind of libraries and that role of the library, I think, is still really valued, and pe- people get it, why it's important. Right. And you can almost see that they would quit investing in funding, believing that more and more people are going online. But your data, I think, you, you, you know, can't yeah, – it's I, not in it's dispute. Like I said, it surprised me. It's, yeah, it's, it's, that's why it's such, such a valuable uh, piece um, that you wrote there. Uh, again, we appreciate you being here. Donald Barclay. Uh, and your great work um, on this article, Has the Library Outlived Its Usefulness in the Age of the Internet? You'd be surprised. You can find that article on theconversation.com. Again, Donald Barclay is the Deputy University Librarian at the University of California Merced Campus. Thanks for being here, Donald. We'll take a break. Thank you. And appreciate uh, just your work. Opening our minds up, folks, giving you the information you need. The library's not dead. Go use it. And it sounds like it's going to be a while you'll be able to check books out because they're never going to solve the financial side of that. That's a big deal. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. It's my house. Come on. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, folks. You know, um, in our lives, there's there's a lot of things, big and little, right, that that occupy our mind and our energies. Uh, I've I've kind of I'm a big believer that our thinking deeply impacts what we feel, right? So if we tend to think negative thoughts, you might feel more negative things. If you tend to, um, you know, think that there's a lot of hope and opportunity in the world, you tend to feel that. If you feel that, you tend to go looking for it. You do different things. So thinking leads to feelings, feelings lead to actions, actions lead to what we're becoming. It's a fairly basic, what I call a change model. And um, I found that there's certain little lies, maybe myths, things that we believe that actually may be stunting some of our true growth. It may be stunting us, keeping us 
from being the person we want to be. And I wanted to review some of those um, those lies, those myths that uh, that we think that really I think sometimes in a way they depress us. They make us a little bit more um, exhausted with our lives. One, for example, one of these hidden lies is the idea that, you know, if you have a natural gift, that's actually better than um, than any other gift you may have acquired over time. Right. So, for example, um, if you're naturally musical and it comes really easy to you and you can just get it and it get you get it really well. I know a lot of people that revere that as actually a better thing, as as more valuable than the person maybe that isn't naturally as gifted in music, but works really hard to get good at it. You know, we have a lot of people that that sit there and, you know, the, the person that has the naturally perfect, you know, shaped body or the naturally healthy um, physique or the one that just naturally, I mean, I've had my sisters frustrated because some of their friends just had natural curl in their hair. But my sisters have to work at it every day to get their hair curly. Or the guy that's just naturally charismatic. Or, um, you know, the one that just naturally is smart. Is that a better gift than the one that works at it? The reality is, is some of us, you know, there's this different mindset we can pick up. And we've talked about it on the show with Carol Dweck, whether you have a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. And people that think that things are fixed, they are just what they are. They like the idea that some people are just naturally gifted. But there's another mindset that says, no, 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 we can grow. We can become better. We can adapt and we can get good at stuff that maybe we weren't naturally good at. And that growth mindset is a really important mindset because if you think that only natural gifts are worth anything, then you might be setting yourself up to actually never have to do anything because the reality is a lot of our biggest you know, advancements in life didn't come just naturally. They came by people working and adapting and changing. So let's blow up that myth that if somebody's just naturally good at something, they're obviously better than those that work hard. If you've never, if you've ever met somebody that was naturally gifted that never worked on their gift, you know very quickly that having a gift that you don't work on doesn't make you that great. It actually may make make you lose the gift, right? So it might be more important to realize that the best gifts are the ones that we actually appreciate a lot and the most and that we work on day in and day out. Another thing that another lie that I think we tell ourselves is that, oh, I could never handle X. If this happened to me, I could never handle that. I, I mean, I could never handle losing a child. I could never handle uh, my parents dying. I could never handle such a thing. Be careful ever telling yourself that lie because the reality is you could you know, humans are notoriously bad at predicting what we're good at and what we're not good at. I mean, most people think they're really good drivers, and the reality is, eh, you're not so good. You really aren't a great driver. So be careful thinking that you could never do something simply because, you know, A, you may have to, you may have to face that terror someday, and the reality is uh, you, you'll handle it. You wouldn't want to handle it. It maybe is a better thing to say. I could never handle X. Instead of saying that, maybe say, I would never want to handle X. But if it happened to you, the reality is you'd, you'd handle it and you'd probably kill it. You'd do a great job. Again, yesterday, if you remember, I was talking about my friend, uh, David Colliker, who 
has a brain tumor. And he wrote a book, Everyone Should Have a Brain Tumor. Um, and the reality is he would he would have probably thought I could never handle a brain tumor. I, I could never go through that. But when you're forced to go through something, you know what's amazing? You go through it. And you'll handle it. And you won't even just handle it. You'll do an awesome job at it. And then, interestingly, it becomes not so much of just a horrible trial that destroyed you. It becomes the thing that refined you. It becomes the thing that actually makes you who you really are. So uh, two myths that we got to watch out for, two lies that we tend to tell ourselves. The natural gifts are the only good gifts, right? And that I could never handle X. And in reality, all gifts that you work hard at are worth having and... Uh, you can handle a lot more than you ever thought you could. Anyway, just a little advice from your coach, your guide on the side. Dr. Matt will continue the journey more straight ahead. We'll be talking about the little things likable people do to hold back their temper. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Do you have some pet peeves that just push you over the edge? For some people, it's dishes in the sink. For others, it's cars not using their turn signals. Or for others, it's, it's you know, it's just the correct way that the, you have to put the toilet paper on the roll, right? There's just, there's just the right way to do it and the wrong way to do it. Well, sometimes it is simply the last straw when they, those needs aren't met for us and we break and we just completely lose it. So what are some tips for dealing with your temper? Gia Ganesh, a career strategist and empowerment coach, joined us uh, a while ago to give us some tips on handling our temper. I started the interview by asking, are our tempers something that we need? to learn to control, right? Absolutely, Matt. And I think uh, in today's busy world, tempers seem to flare up all around us, even at the drop of a pin or drop of a hat. And oh, like yeah. you said, you know, just seeing the toilet paper <laughs> sitting in the wrong direction could <laughs> cause a huge, huge uh, uh, burst of temper at home. You know, so you're right about that. Is, is, why is it that some of us are more easily provoked than others? Oh, that's a great question, Matt. And there is a few reasons that we can talk about as to why tempers can be triggered, you know. And let me talk about a few here. Okay? Yeah, the first please. one is expectations from others. You know, we tend to expect so much from others. And when our expectations are not met, we feel disappointed, frustrated, let down, and that may trigger a temper burst, you know. So why is it that you expect your spouse to put your put the toilet paper in a particular direction? Why can't you do it? Like, for yeah. example, right? Yeah. Another reason, Matt, is that when we feel exploited or insecure or we feel emotions like fear, guilt, shame, vulnerability, or embarrassment, we may mask it by putting on an anger front, you know? Mm. And the reason that uh, people do that is because they don't want to connect with that true inner feeling that they're going through. When we lose our temper, we get a temporary boost of self-esteem. You know, it's just a momentary. It's really a minute, but you get that boost. People would rather go with feeling that boost of self-esteem through shouting or, you know, and expressing their anger in various ways than to feel that pain of shame or embarrassment or fear. And that is another reason that temper tantrums are quite common. It's a, it really is. It's interesting because it's you do get that little bo- boost of self-esteem, and you can also see that you know if you've been shamed if you if you feel vulnerable you this is just a, a protective mechanism and 
And yet we, we don't always see it as that, right? So when, when I'm feeling vulnerable or somebody I felt like I'm, I'm shamed or, or feel ashamed, um, I, I, I end up instead you blow it up and you kind of push all of that energy onto the other partner. Is that just our means of kind of confusing the situation so it's not so real? You're, you're right, Matt. It's just our way of coping with that situation. And let me talk to you about the third reason, and I'll tie it back together. Okay. And the third reason is, uh, it may sound surprising, but our childhood and our upbringing may influence how we react to things. Hmm. So, for example, um, what we've seen when growing up as ways to express feelings, you know, both positive and negative. Maybe we grew up in an environment where somebody who always expressed their anger and who is the loudest always got their way around. Yeah, true. True. And then that becomes a deep-rooted belief in you that, okay, that's how I, I will get my way around with the world, by always being the loudest and by being bossy or being throwing a temper tantrum, right? So yeah. That's, that's like a – oh, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead, Gia. No, no. I'm sorry, Matt. I was just going to say that that ties back to what you brought up earlier about our self-defensive de- um, um, mechanism. So when we've seen this happen or we've come across a situation where we know we are going to feel that – pain of vulnerability or shame or fear that we may have experienced earlier in our childhood many times, you know. We may have been shamed for getting low grades or being fat or, you know, there could be a number of reasons why we may have been uh, shamed or felt vulnerable. So when we, our brains go into that um, defensive mechanism by adopting a different front, and in this case we're talking about adopting a temper front, to mask that feeling, I don't want, our, you know, our brains don't want to go through that feeling again or feeling that pain. So they put on this front and then completely lose sight of that feeling of shame and vulnerability, and that is pushed aside. Yeah. So you're right about the fact that it is a defensive mechanism as well. And, and it's it's interesting because it, it, it happens automatically, right? It's not like yeah. I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I will now blow this up so as to avoid being vulnerable. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a pattern we've created, and we may have even created it, like you're saying, at a young age, at a very Absolutely. young age. Yeah, it's kind of scary. It's subconscious, right? It's a subconscious part of us that we don't even realize exists, and it's, uh, it's a mindset almost, you know? Yeah, no, it's scary. It's a scary mindset because I mean, just because we're not we're not leading it, are we? I mean, it, it's almost like, yeah. that. Almost seems like it's outside of us, even though we're the ones that created it. Exactly, you're right, man. You're right. Yeah. And I'll going back to the reasons as to why we may be easily triggered is, uh, of course, last but not the least, stress, Matt. It's a huge trigger for temper, right? Yeah. Our lives are so fast-paced nowadays that we seem to be juggling so many things that overwhelm and stress seem to arise out of nowhere at the drop of a hat. So stress is another huge trigger for temper. And it doesn't seem like that's going down in most of us either, you know. Yeah, not anytime soon. So, so we, yeah. we, we, is it, it seems like sometimes, and maybe it's just that's what we've learned, but it almost seems like sometimes you could – you can see generations of of angry temper people, right? The people that have and and show and demonstrate anger. It might be grandpa had it, dad got yes. grandpa's temper, I got dad's temper. Um, is it handed down too genetically? It seems like there's something there. There seems to be a small genetic component to it, Matt. But it's also the fact that you've seen that. You've seen it all through your childhood, right? You've seen your grandpa shouting. 
yeah. and having a temper. Then you've seen your dad do it. And you've seen that those are the people that rule the house. They got their way. They, they were the masters of the house. So like we already talked about a little bit earlier, Matt, is the fact that it's become a part of you. You've seen that and you believe that is the world. Mm. That is your world when you were younger. And you grow up, and that's the way you react with the world around you. Right. And, and if, my, if a parent did use uh, anger and temper and um, yelling at their child, that child may have felt more shame. So they may have built deeper patterns of shame management and, and, temper, and, manage, and using tempers the way they all keep passing it on. Yes. Mm. It's a tangled web, isn't it, Gia? It, it is, totally. And you need, you, we've seen this, like even these unfortunate shootings in the past week could be a result of just simple things like not knowing how to manage temper or not knowing how to express those feelings of shame or pain or vulnerability or embarrassment that the child could have been feeling. That was Gia Ganesh, uh, again, a career strategist and an empowerment coach, helping us understand how to manage our emotion, our reactivity, our anger a little bit better. And that's, remember, one of the goals of the show is to help you get the tools you need to uh, live a healthier, happier life. And we'll continue the journey more straight ahead right here on The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, along with Terry and Becca. The gang is gathered We are ready to uh, enlighten you with life and incredibly awesome marriage tips today. We will help you today get through those rough patches of your marriage if you, you know, have those. Right? Like Becca's coming in every day like, oh, my husband this, my husband that. All the time. Yep. Have you not heard that? Terry's looking surprised. No. Aha! Because she's not married. Well, that's that was my kind of next point was that I don't believe she's married. But. Yeah, it does a lot. I have to not say he, uh, he, he never bothers me, <laughs> never gets on my nerves. You and your husband have the best relationship because you, you don't have to bother with it right now. It could probably use some work, though, because I would I'd have to say we don't talk very much. Yeah, I've noticed. Yeah, you guys. Communication's uh, out of pretty much zero. It's almost like he's never around. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what it is. I'm looking forward to these tips. It's a good time. It really is a good time, Becca, to uh, to live because um, not only are three American hostages freed, mm. that's part of the show today. That was pretty cool. We'll talk about that. We will also get into- There's the, not much more to say. No, there is. We'll talk about rough patches in marriage. Oh, okay. How to manage your anger mm. and some lies that we may tell ourselves that we probably need to quit saying. Or are these all related? Mm-hmm. This is all one show. Lies. Yeah. It's all one show. So uh, all of that fun straight ahead, plus, um, you know, the the fact that, uh, you know, because Terry's here and he's spent all night up since two in the morning when they brought these hostages back. No, no. He has been researching all things Trump Mm. and uh, the credit that should go to President Trump because of the freeing of these hostages. So, Terry, let's just get right to you. What else? Should we be focused on today? So Trump was there on the uh, tarmac, I guess you could say, yeah. as he uh, met the three prisoners 
who were returned. This is his quote. He goes, this is a special night for these three really great people, and congratulations on being in this country. Uh, I really think Kim Jong-un wants to do something and bring this country into the real world. I think this will be a very big success. Mm. It's never been taken this far. It's never been a relationship like this. That was a good moment. Yeah. Great quote. It was two in the morning. So maybe that was, maybe, I don't know. It's two in the morning. It's early. What do you mean? I just think that, I mean, this is a really, I don't know. They just seem like not as strong of a statement. This is a special night for these three really great people, and congratulations on being in this country. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the phrase just sounds like really generic. And I, not well, to split I mean, hairs, it was two in the morning. It, it was matter. two just in like, the morning. You, but, could, uh, you could say this at like, oh, but this at could, like a welcome fifth grade home. graduation. Welcome home. We missed you. Just a quote. Welcome. Yeah. We love you. We're so huh. grateful you're here. Instead of congratulations like like, on being in this country. It's like a Hallmark card. Yeah. And by the way, mm-hmm. and you're really nice people. Yeah. yeah. Hugs. So, I mean, great. But three guys. It was three in the morning. It was two they, in the morning. Three people that were held hostage. There's other people. There are questions about where they have been that, it, that have gone lost yep. in North Korea. Well, we and had so another they're... one. Do you remember? We had one a, a year ago that came home so sick that he died. He died. Yes. I mean, this, and that's a whole other discussion about what do you do knowing that so many people have died there, and not right. even just Americans, all these other, and North Koreans. North Korean citizens that have died. And and those are hopefully going to be part of some of this. I'm not sure. Yeah, there will have to be some I mean, some there's discussion. a bigger picture here. We don't want you to drop some crazy bomb on another country. So let's right. start there, and we right. can work through the issues. But again, there's a success. Three American hostages released. And congratulations. There we go. On... That is really country. great. That's a, that's, a, that's a big deal. Yeah. President Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, reportedly signed a $1.2 million contract with drug maker uh, Novartis in February 2017 on the promise that he could help the company gain access to the president and administration insiders. Ooh. He reached out to us, says uh, Notavirus employee uh, reported, adding, it was almost as if we were hiring him as a lobbyist. On Tuesday night, the New York Times initially reported that Cohen's Essential Consultants LLC had at least 4.4 million pass through it, including 500,000 from a Columbus Nova, a New York investment firm with deep ties to a Russian oligarch, Victor Velklesberg. Watch your mouth. I know, I'm sorry. Documents provided by Michael Avanti, the, the lawyer for one of the women that were paid off by Mr. Cohen showed some $400,000 from Notavirus passed through essential consultants between 2017 and 2018. Vecklesburg, the oligarch, and officials at Notavirus have reportedly been interviewed by special counsel Robert Mueller. So he's all over this. Aye, aye. This is influence peddling. This yeah. is some of that swampy sort of behavior. I mean, it's but, one thing to be Novartis it's a, or AT&T. I mean, I guess mm-hmm. they're probably they're used in to there China. Too, yeah. but. It, then there's the Russian guy. It's the Russian guy that's the 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 the, the issue. Where like, what's he doing? And allegedly, this the money. These funds would come in from these companies and be in the exact same bank account mm-hmm. that he used to pay out Stormy Daniels. Right. And so it's like, okay, was did the Russians? Pay did the off Russians Stormy? help pay off Stormy? How did that work? So these are all questions. That's okay. why it's in the news. Yeah. Also, the influence peddling is something that Trump was fighting against through his entire campaign right. and then all the then here you have your personal lawyer who's out going to companies saying i can help you right it wasn't like they were looking for someone yeah. he went and said hey i got this thing i can do for you it yeah 
which just kind of looks bad. Interestingly, though, I think the Russian guy, too, was also one that contributed to the Clinton Fund Foundation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it almost shows you that almost what uh, maybe Cohen was doing was, I don't know, he didn't have an institution like the Clinton Foundation. Right. But he was getting paid to get you connected to the, the big cheese. Yeah. It's, can I get you next to the big guy? And I, yeah, sure, come on in. I know him. I'm his personal attorney. We'll see what happens. So uh, part of National Security Advisor John Bolton's full overhaul of the National Security Council, he's leading a push to abolish the role of the special assistant to the president and cybersecurity coordinator. The huh. top White House cybersecurity job. Political reports citing one current and two former U.S. officials. One of the former officials said there is a 60-40 chance that the White House eliminates the job altogether, potentially leaving the U.S. government rudderless, heading into the elections in which Russia is widely expected to meddle through cyber means. Right. So we'd get rid of our cyber czar. Whoever's supposed to be fighting the cybersecurity threats on our country, we're just going to eliminate that because we don't think it's important. Uh, his name is Jimmy. He's a 22-year-old software engineer. As uh, one uh, former uh, NSC cyber policy director says, this would be the equivalent of ta- the. Uh, this would show the world that the U.S. is taking the gas off the pedal of cybersecurity as a key national security issue. Oh wow! Because you know, did it happen? Really. Well, I mean, that's the that's what the big guy says, know, right? The guy that's in the White House. We know it happened. Everybody, I mean, our five our five intelligence directors all got up and said, right. something happened. They asked the woman that's uh, going for the CIA job yesterday, and yeah. she said, absolutely, I believe that happened. Wow, okay. California poised to capitalize on its status as one of the nation's sunniest states. All California homes built in 2020 or later will have solar panels. The Wall Street Journal reports, wow. following a mandate passed by the California Energy Commission on Wednesday, lawmakers voted five to nothing to approve the measure requiring new developments to install panels to provide renewable energy for the building. The rule will apply to residential buildings up to three stories high. The measure will cost an additional $9,500 in construction costs per home on average. So the houses wow. were expensive before, now they're just going to drop another ten grand on top. Literally, because yeah. they'll probably be on the roof. Okay, let's do that then. Just a thought. Finally, this is a crime against the very fabric of America, Matt. This goes to the heart of who we are as a people. All right. Detectives with the Los Angeles Police Department are investigating the recent disappearance, in quotes, disappearance. Yeah, disappearance. Of the prop armor valued at around $325,000 used in Marvel Studios' first Iron Man film back in 2018. Iron Man's armor is missing. From the movie back in 2008. Uh, where was it? It was in a warehouse, and now it's not there anymore. So obviously it wasn't that important if it was just in a warehouse. Well, it's in storage with all the rest of the props know, and it things. It seems like you'd want that out No, because they display. bring it back and they put it in the background of an Iron Man movie when he walks through his, his little Iron Man headquarters and he has all the different Iron Man suits that he's made. Wow, he's the, just in the background. Wow, this is really affecting you. According to LA's CBS affiliate station, staff at the storage facility where the armor was kept last accounted for it in February, but when it could not be found late last month, they contacted the authorities. A spokesperson for the LAPD says that while the department is working with the assumption that the costume was in fact stolen, there are currently no leads as to who the culprit might have been in the theft, if uh, it is indeed a theft. Maybe it's just a misplacement by a janitorial service. Could have been Loki. 
Isn't this part of the plot? It could have been in the that, movie. That like an old suit goes missing or he goes back and he uses an old suit. Maybe yeah. he needed it. You think it. Loki came back and Maybe went through the warehouse? Tony Stark just took it because, you know, it's his armor. Why is it in a warehouse? It's a great point. In other news, Disney CEO Bob Iger said in a conference call Tuesday that the uh, Avengers franchise may never end. Though the recent Avengers Infinity War and its untitled sequel, Avengers 4, will end the current arc, Iger said that he sees a future for the franchise, according to The Hollywood Reporter. Don't expect to change right away, Marvel Studio boss Kevin Feige told Vanity Fair the next 20 Marvel Cinematic Universe films will be something completely different from what we've seen so far. The next 20 Marvel movies. (laughs) Uh. We've had 18. Well, what this means is there's and they're going to be totally more. different. Twenty more, completely different. Can't wait. It's going to be awesome. I hope we're getting like a Christmas sing along. Oh yeah, no, no, the no, Shrek, no. Wasn't singing. that Shrek Five? They uh. did. They did the singing in that one Spider-Man movie where he went all emo and got moody. And mm. we're not doing that anymore. Spider emo moody. Mm. It was poor. He had hair. It was weird. Just nobody cares. Note sing. Just be superhero-y. Is that a word? It is now. It's, like, in, uh, it's in my lexicon. You can expand the market, add Jane Austen into the Marvel Universe. No, you don't need to I add. Really think, uh, oh, Jane Austen, that would be great. Oh, now we're ruining comic books. Pride and Prejudice League. 20, oh, Pride 20. and Prejudice League. PPL. Make your, own, market for this. make your own movies that nobody wants to watch. Mm. we got 20 more. What are you going to do in 20 movies that's totally different they from the other ones? They have 7,000 characters in Marvel oh comics. Oh, my gosh. Really? Yeah. They've only they've only brushed up like there's like sixty something. They haven't. What if movies. like the Avengers took yeah. on Dow Dowton Abbey? Uh, yeah, that would just be, you know. Now we're talking. That'd be cool. what would they do? Sit around and talk about you know what they have nothing to do the rest of the day? Yeah. We're gonna go on a fox hunt. I will watch from a, you know from a, a, a hill across the valley or you something. You make it sound so negative it's that way. It's so boring. Hmm. The only uh, thing interesting about Downton Abbey was all the stuff happening in the kitchen. Yeah, in the in the belly. The upstairs. In the belly of the, the upstairs. House. They were just moving from the parlor room to the dining room, and then oh, let's go to the parlor room. See, again. you are a fan. Yeah, I've seen the whole series. So, yeah. what do you want? Twice. I'm not a fan. Well, I was supporting my wife and her endeavor and watching a show. You don't have to talk. Twenty your way out more of it. Marvel movies. Just man. enjoy just, it. Just love. And we need to find that armor. It's important. Oh, brother. Okay. So, great. The Avengers will go on forever. Yay. The Infinity Series. Yeah. It's like it's like Barney's dinosaur song that never ends. It's just a song that never ends until you want to just pop Barney right in the kisser. Not Makes to, sense. Not to be violent. It's a song about love, Matt. Yeah, it is. And it never ends. It never ends. Kind of like the Avengers series. <laughs> All right. uh, That's fun. Uh, More straight ahead. Up next, we're going to be talking about The Rough Patch, uh, Marriage and the Art of Living Together. It's a book about how to get through kind of the difficult times that we go through in our lives with our spouse. It's not always easy, but it is worth it. We'll get into it up next on The Matt Townsend Show.
The challenges confronting today's marriages are varied and complex. We are living longer, our parents are living longer, and the financial and work at life pressures that couples are trying to bear are more daunting than ever before. Yet couples are trying to make their marriages work better and better and uh, and, and make it and actually do it in a way that that's enjoyable, right? That they're connected and and not just getting by, but uh, but thriving. And under the best circumstances, though, you can expect some rough patches to happen in your relationship. Uh, joining us to talk about her book, The Rough uh, Patch, Marriage and the Art of Living Together, Daphne DeMarneff um, is here to discuss the challenges that we are confronting and some uh, tricks that we can use to get through those rough patches. Daphne, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. What, um, I mean, are, are there any new issues? I do a lot of marriage uh, coaching and, and work on relationships. Do you see any new issues uh, that are maybe impacting our relationships today that, that maybe weren't impacting us 10 years ago? Well, yes, I think there are a number of issues that are specific to our time, and um, many of your listeners may have a flash of recognition thinking about uh, the role of um, our phones, the role of the internet, um, the role of the constant thrumming 24-7 sort of input from the culture. Um, You know, over 30 years or so, men's and women's roles have changed. Um, More uh, people are in couples where both people have jobs, so both people are juggling their child care responsibilities, their community responsibilities, their job responsibilities. And so that makes everybody busier. Um, and then on top of that, you have kind of a lot of distraction. And so, you know, my principle in this book is that really emotions are at the core mm. of who we are. And connecting emotionally is at the core of who we are. And yet that's not always easy. It feels risky. It feels vulnerable. And so distractions can some sometimes um, end up being a kind of uh, escape from the difficulties of that. And they're just everywhere all the time. Absolutely. And it, it even seems like more and more in today's literature we we you know we i think connection has always been a desire a goal of every human being but it seems like there's even a stronger emphasis on connecting on belonging and mm-hmm. you know today than there's ever been in the literature and um so i guess i guess that like you're saying the distractions create a problem to this connecting it gives us something else to do um and meanwhile we have the same old problems too right yeah yeah i mean i think psychological science has and and brain science even has really made huge uh discoveries and strides in the past few decades in terms of how fundamentally connected human beings are and have to be and i think that that actually helps people think about these primary deep family relationships is something that they really want to nurture and sustain. You know, this sort of divorce boom of the 80s is is over. (laughs) People are really trying to do this, but, you know, it's complicated for for a variety of reasons. It really is. Do you, um, when you look at it, too, I mean, with the advancing technology, I mean, the irony is it should also enhance our abilities to connect. I mean, it should free up some of our time because of the technology. But um, also, too, it's, it has this addictive nature to it where we, we actually can't put it down sometimes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that um, 
you know, being a human being, we all need attachment. And yet attachment is a really interesting thing. If you think of attachment with your children, you need to hug them and love them and care for them every day. You can't hug them, you know, last week and say that's enough, right? So the nature of attachment is that you're always renewing it and you're always deepening it through daily contact and connection. And everyone has really busy lives and emotions can be kind of messy and inconvenient. If you feel, you know, your partner hurt your feelings, it might take a real conversation that you don't feel you have time to have. So there's a lot of stresses and tensions that create this um, tendency of people to sort of ignore uh, the repairing and the connecting and the working through difficult emotions to a point of feeling close. And it's understandable, as you say, given all this distraction. And it's also understandable based on just natural human fear and vulnerability about, you know, putting your tender emotions out there. And and I think one thing that could really help your listeners is, you know, the work of marriage isn't the chores of it. It's the staying emotionally vulnerable. You know, it's a good day for you if you keep trying to reach out and keep trying to connect. And that's not always easy. It can take work. Mm. Especially for those that have had, uh, you know, they've had a hiccup and and they've kind of disconnected for a few years. Sometimes that idea of reconnecting, being vulnerable again, you know, maybe forgiving the the problem that happened a few years ago, Mm -hmm. um, that almost seems like a chasm that's just too wide. Well, exactly. So part of the reason I wrote this book is, number one, to normalize that in any long relationship, there are going to be hiccups, there are going to be complications, there are going to be difficulties or events that you couldn't have foreseen. So that's a given, and that doesn't mean something's fatally flawed. It means that you're human and you're struggling along. But the way that it works when people just get to that chasm and they say, you know, it's not worth it, there's a lot of buildup to that. And I think it generally has to do with people can. Uh, just subtly over time turning away from each other and not having those hard conversations and reengaging around the difficulties of their relationship. And so as you sort of become more walled off and more independent, that can actually lead to some of these hiccups, right? Because mm. people aren't feeling that they're getting what they need from the, the, the relationship. Do you sense that it's impacting our children. I mean, as as because this really is, you know, it used to be other problems we had in that created those difficult patches. Maybe alcoholic issues, you know, infidelity, um, financial pressures, problems in the past. In the future, or I mean, in the present, it's more technology that keeps us distant. It's it's just um, other, you know, there, there's other forces that are maybe bringing more temptations to us online. Do you um, do you sense that we're we're actually understanding how to do it? Are we getting how to handle the 21st century marriage, um, or do we really kind of need a, a new set of tools? Well, you know, I think that the, the, the number of the things you've mentioned are still alive and well, you yeah. know, addictions and affairs, and certainly money is a universal uh, source of tension uh, in couples. And so, you know, I think our lives are extremely complicated, and in some ways marriage is harder than ever before because of all the distractions, all the temptations, and, you know, also our very high aspirations for right. it, you know, that we really want it to be a long intimate relationship 
And, um, you know, in a very previous area, people might have been happy, pleasantly surprised that their relationship felt connected and loving, but weren't necessarily expecting uh, that the cottage industry of their family was going to result in an intimate human relationship. You know, so I think our expectations are high, and I think it's good they're high. I think what we do have uh, that's an advantage over previous generations in terms of this question of tools that you mentioned is I think we're a lot more emotionally intelligent than we used to be. I mean, right. that, that on a large scale. I mean, that the, the social sciences and psychology is much more permeating the culture. We understand a lot more about sexuality, for instance. We understand a lot more about the science of emotional connection. Um, and so I think we actually, you know, my book is really trying to help bring that to people in a very emotionally immediate way. Sometimes you read a book about how the brain works and it's telling you your, your dopamine's doing this and your serotonin's doing that and it's somehow you're supposed to translate that into something about your own felt experience right. and it's the bridge too far. So this book is really, it's talking about some of this these emotional discoveries we've made, but it's really doing it in a way that's, hey, you're right here, you're dealing with this problem, whether it's alcohol or affairs or aging or, you know, how do you think about this and how do you know yourself emotionally in a way that can be a tool to being closer? Mm. We're speaking with Daphne DeMarneff, and she is the author um, of The Rough Patch, Marriage and the Art of Living Together, and other a variety of other books. She's a clinical psychologist who works with individuals and couples in Corte Madera, California, and is also a contributing writer for Parents Magazine and other, other sources um, and other magazines. Uh, when you talk about this, Daphne, too, um, it also just seems like there are some things that we can do and do better. Give us some examples of what are what are some things I can do today to make my my relationship a little bit more emotionally connected, to to actually grow a little deeper love, so we can make it through the rough patches. Well, one of the things that I felt that I really discovered through writing this book, or I was able to articulate from my practice with couples, is that um, there are two factors that I think are absolutely central to getting along better with your partner today. One of them is self-awareness, and the other is self-responsibility. And here's what I mean by that. If I see two couples with the exact same problem, and in one couple, each person is able to say to the other, hey, I know what I'm doing that's a problem, that's self-awareness, and I'm going to try to work on it, that's self-responsibility. Those two things are incredibly powerful and meaningful to the other person because we know that when people can't apologize, when they blame the other for their own behavior, when they criticize the other for their own behavior, when they refuse to take responsibility or look within, that is when people feel most hopeless about being able to connect to their partner. So in other words, you may have a big problem. You may be, you know, attracted to someone at work or you may be drinking too much or you may, well, you know, or you may be, you know, spending too much money or whatever. But if if you can say, look, I know I have a problem. I know this is a problem. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to work on it. That makes a huge difference. Mm. And so it, you don't have to solve everything about your personality tomorrow, but you have to be taking responsibility for trying to be a better partner, a person more capable of closeness, a communicative person, and so forth. Yeah, and it seems like that right there induces health, I mean, and hope, because mm-hmm. I see there's a chance. Okay, he gets yeah. it, 
and he's willing to change or try to change. And then I guess that just has to be that just has to be worked on. I mean, you have to show some results. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you're a person who keeps saying I'm working on it and you're not, I got it. I got that, it. <laughs> that is going to erode trust, right? Yeah. So, you know, but but I, what I'm trying to say is we're not all perfect. No. You know, and we're but but it's the intention, right, and the direction and the goal and the effort and the understanding that this is actually a problem for this person that you love and care about, and and you've taken that to heart. Do you sense um, that, I mean, we know that our teenagers, I mean, are not our teens, our 20-somethings are marrying later. We know Mm -hmm. they're, um, they actually are having a a more successful rate at their marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, Is, are they, is it rubbing off? Are we, are we getting this enough that we're handing down a good tradition of marriage? Or have we kind of made marriage kind of a taboo subject where people don't want it anymore? You know, it seems to vary so much. Um, you know, I think I really do. I write in the book how the, the people who grow up in families where their parents are genuinely happily married to each other have this unbelievable advantage emotionally, right? They've stayed, they know this in their bones, right. what, what it takes and what it is. But many, many of us did not grow up in that situation. And, 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 and the, the work there is to really, as I said, try to understand yourself, try to know who you are, try to be self-aware, self-responsible, etc. Um, but I, you know, I think there's so many different cultural pockets around this. I do think that people are coming up with all sorts of different arrangements. And, of course, we live way longer than we used to, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a challenge there. Um, but I do think that um, there is a role for parents to talk to their uh, young adult children about their wisdom or their experience or their own failures. Um, you know, kids sometimes don't really want to hear from you that much. They want to live their own life, and on some level that makes sense. But I do think... It's valuable to think about what could I really impart about what I've learned about uh, intimate or long-term relationships because um, it's complicated. There's a lot of lot of stuff in there to to figure out, and I think parents can be a resource for their kids. Absolutely, and and I guess that in the end is um, that's another reason why we we ought to work harder on our relationships so we can hand down a tradition that's a little healthier for others. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, you know, sometimes parents, I teach a class to people who are about to have their first baby and they're, you know, concerned about various things and they'll say things like, you know, is it okay to fight in front of the kids? Or, you know, some people grow up in families where they never saw their parents fight and they feel that's a problem. Other people feel their parents were screaming at each other. That's a problem. I do think, and the research backs this up, that children seeing parents who are two individuals who are struggling through trying to come to a compromise or an understanding, that is a healthy modeling for them because intimate relationships are about struggling through problems and coming to some solution that's workable for both people. And if you can see your parents doing that in a way that's civil, that's caring, that's not explosive, that's not icy, you know, that is a huge benefit to your kids. And so I don't think people should be too afraid of showing differences or contradictions or conflict or even arguments as long as they're not, you know, as long as they're safe and um, civil and, um, you know, show that you're really trying. Right, right. Uh, as we wrap this up, Daphne, what would you say, if, if there's one thing, what, what's the one thing we can start doing today? The one yeah. thing that would make the biggest difference on helping us get through the rough patch? 
Well, you know, I mentioned self-awareness and self-responsibility. I think think to yourself, okay, I want to, if I want to connect to this person, I'm going to have to be vulnerable. That's scary. And that's the work of this relationship. And, you know, if I can say one thing to this person about how I want to share my feelings, how I care about their feelings, and have a deeper conversation, I would say start that today. Start there. Daphne DeMarna, thank you so much for your time, your great uh, insight, your, and your willingness to be with us. Um, this is really, I think, one of the most important things we do on Earth is getting married and, and creating that uh, intimate bond, that relationship that uh, Daphne was talking about where you're vulnerable, you're open to each other, and you're, and you're willing to be open and a, and a good, you know, safe space where someone else can share their vulnerability. The name of the book, again, is The Rough Patch, Marriage and the Art of Living Together. And you can go, uh, you can go find that, that. And again, go do whatever you can today to just express your willingness, your desire to be a partner who is open and sharing and, and receiving of, of your other uh, of, your, of the heart of your other um, the people in your life. We will continue the journey, folks. More straight ahead. Uh, up next, we'll be talking more about some of the, uh, the lies that we may believe in ourselves, the, the lies that make it so that maybe we don't even grow our own sense of confidence in ourselves. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, um, uh, I've been talking about these ideas of every one of us, in fact. We we have little myths, little lies. I don't know what else to call them. Things that we think have to be a certain way. And um, they're, 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 they're lies that we tell ourselves that actually make it so we lose some self-esteem. We lose some self-worth. You know, like... All, one, one of the ones that I've already talked about is natural gifts are the only real gift, right? So if you don't do something naturally and you're not just naturally gifted at something, then it's then you obviously you're not as good as the one that actually has hard time learning math and then you work your way through it and then you figure it out. That's not as that's not as powerful in our world as just as the one that just naturally gets it. Right. So we have that belief. Another belief is that we can't handle certain things. Another belief or a lie that we kind of tell ourselves is that some things are just black and white, right? They're just black and white. And it's, it's either it's A or B. It's good or bad. It's, it's right or wrong, right? It's, it's yes or no. It's up or down. It's, it is what it is. It's just this black or white thing. And the irony about black or white is that it's all right in the eye of the beholder, and it also isn't it also determined isn't the judgment of whether something's right or wrong determined also in the depth of the understanding as to why the act took place so isn't it true that the more you understand somebody the more something doesn't necessarily become right or wrong and isn't it also true that some actions are wrong and yet the motive behind it wasn't as wrong or vice versa. And so I, I like that. I mean, I'm a big believer, you know, God is black or white, right? Except, you know, um, God also has in-depth understanding of the motive and the intent and the heart and the experience of what somebody has gone through before they do what they do. 
And I'm assuming they're not going to be judged just on the letter of the law, but maybe the spirit of the law as well. Life is pretty paradoxical, really. It's I've noticed that in sometimes the hardest things that I go through also have a very easy component to them. Or sometimes things are fun, but they're also complicated. And sometimes being complicated makes things more fun. And other times having something complicated makes things less fun. And I've noticed that sometimes people can be nice and simultaneously they can hurt you. And you can love them and not want to be with them all the time. So things aren't always black and white. And I, I want us all to kind of know that because the minute you assume everything is black or white, then you might be setting yourself up for the fact that everything in, on earth has to be good or bad. And everything on earth has to be now or never, right? We kind of dichotomize and we make everything an either or when many times there is an and involved. You can do both. And you can love somebody deeply and I don't need to be with you all the time. And that doesn't make it bad, right? So be careful of being too fixated on black or white thinking. Also, another one is everyone else has their um, has their act together. That is such an illusion, such a lie. When you look around and as somebody that sits down with four or five people a day whose lives are really strained and they're having a difficult uh, time in their life, most people don't have their act together. Most people just are hanging on by a thread. Most of us, you know, can't put it all together physically, socially, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually. We just can't do it all. And so the illusion that everyone else is doing so much better than you is nothing more really than just an illusion. It's not real. It doesn't, it's not the way it looks. So someone might be the most incredible, you know, nicest person in the world, and they can't do their taxes, and they owe 10 grand in taxes. And they give a ton to charity. And they don't, you know, they don't do everything they can at church to be the best they can be. This can all exist. And they're still, but they still look like they're perfect. The reality is, is we, we don't need to compare. So one of the rules is just lose the comparison. You're not here to compare your game against everyone else's game. You're here to find your happiness, your sense of meaning, your sense of purpose. There's more to life than, you know, pretending like we've got it all together. We just sometimes, and you'll notice when you're really drowning in it, you could care less if everyone else thinks something, right? You're just trying to be alive and and be you. And the last myth I want to blow up is this idea that sometimes we just believe we're really lucky. I'm just so lucky. Um, Some of us believe like there's no way in the world, it's called imposter syndrome, that we actually are not sure that we should, we're not good enough to deserve what we're getting in life. So we might just phrase our life and our great advancements in life as just pure luck. I mean, if you want to attribute it to something, attribute it to blessings and God, if you want to attribute it to something, but don't just attribute it to some random thing of luck. Because the downside to being lucky is that if you're not lucky, then I guess you have no responsibility to do anything except just pray for luck, I guess. When uh, when you start to recognize that a lot of my life is because I work hard and I'm blessed from above. So count your blessings and work like a dog. 
That might be the best equation um, to explain your luck. You're not lucky. You're not an imposter to be so gifted and blessed. You've been blessed from on high and you've worked hard. And when you're blessed from on high and you work hard, things happen. And just as you could be lucky, tomorrow it could turn. And so let's still seek for further blessings from on high and let's still try to uh, work our way through it, right? Maybe blow up the I'm lucky myth. Otherwise, you may be abdicating your responsibility a little bit, just hoping that some leprechaun thinks you're magically delicious. Ah, There's got to be another way. There's got to be another way. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about uh, some of the things you can do to manage your temper a little bit better. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Think about it, folks. Do you ever just lose it? Do you ever just lose your temperature or your temperature? Do you ever just lose your temper and you can't take it? Uh, And off you go. You blow up. And then you feel that weird, strange guilt because I just got to learn to control myself. We've all done it. We've all needed to to be better at managing our temper and and managing our own... um, our own reactivity. And so we invited, uh, we had an interview with Gia Ganesh uh, a while ago about how we can control our temper better. And we wanted to revisit some of that interview today. I started the interview by talking about what, asking about what are some of the things that I can do today to manage my anger? The first thing that you could do is you could take a pause and count to five. It's as simple as that. Just count to five. Just count to five in your mind. Just good. focus on your breath and count to five. It's as simple as that. And the reason why this is powerful, although simple, is because it gives you and the situation a temporary pause. It helps you to take a different perspective and to get your emotions in control, you know? Mm. Yeah. So it, creates a, it just creates a little space for us, doesn't it? Absolutely, yes. So that's a very important technique, and that ties us to the next step, which is um, t- kind of move away from the situation. If if you are in a place where you're able to step out, like let's say you are, you know, you're, like you said, you're rolling up your sleeve to go bash this person up, yeah. right? Yeah. If you can, just take a walk away. Walk away for a minute. Yeah. Just... And see if that is going to help you calm down. Well, and and the walk away is, it's a distraction, but it's also, I guess, it's... Um... It's it's a diversion, but it also gets my energy out of me. I have energy that's building up, which is which feels like anger and the temper going off. But you're just saying take that energy and go use it. Yes, and if you're not in a place where um, you know you you can't just go for a run or exercise, then I suggest walk away. But if not, go for a run. Go for go and exercise. Go to the gym. Go swim. Go dance. Put on some music and dance away. You mm. know. So those are the ideal ways to get that pent-up energy out of you because it's really waiting to get out of you. That's what it's trying to do. When you try to roll up your sleeve and get all that energy focused on your arm, it's trying to get out of you. So why not utilize it in a constructive way, right? Yeah. The next thing that I would like to talk about is uh, I call it splash your face. Mm. And I'll give you a little bit of background on that, uh, Matt. Um, For a long time, I've always seen people, you know, slamming doors or breaking things. You know, we've seen that in movies as well. You know, people sweeping things off the table, um, throwing uh, vases at the walls and stuff like that. And um, 
I've never felt the urge to do that when I was angry, and I always wondered why people did that, right? Yeah, <laughs> what is that about? That? <laughs> yeah, Matt. So I always wondered, and then I started digging a little bit deeper as to why people like to break things or slam doors and stuff of that nature. And uh, uh, what I discovered is that that temporary noise or the act of throwing something gives them that temporary pause that we spoke about a hmm. little earlier. Yeah, their, 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 their pause is just a little more violent. Exactly. And they are probably not, um, some people don't know that they can take a pause in a different way. It could be as simple as that. Or just that they haven't paused, uh, you know, they've not taken that five-second pause that we spoke about a little bit earlier. So thereby they grab onto the nearest thing and slam it, right? Right. But I, then, I had no idea that that's, that, that fit of anger and, you know, the, that violent reaction is is just their way of getting the energy out. So when you bring in this idea of splashing water on your face, mm-hmm. it, like if you just say, okay, I need to go to the bathroom and splash water on my face, then yeah. that's that's actually a routine that you can start you know, incorporating into your life. Yes, and that's what I discovered. Like personally, when I felt angry, instead of uh, shouting or you know doing anything else, I discovered that just going to the sink and splashing cold water made a world of difference. Hmm. Feeling that cold you know, that physical sensation on your, hit your face, and then the water dripping down, you've completely forgotten about what, what it is that is bothering you for that minute, right? Yeah, right. And gives you a chance to cool down. Yeah, and plus it, it removes you to another place. Exactly. So, so you're not in the room, because sometimes people might be trying to make you angry. You know, mm-hmm. they might be pushing your buttons, and so you're not in the same space with the person that was pushing the buttons. This might happen in a, be- a business meeting, or I've seen it in with attorneys and uh, people that were divorcing. Sometimes you just need to excuse yourself and go throw some water on your face. Yes, just run to the restroom. That's it. Excuse yourself. Yeah, that's great. And a couple other quick tips are meditating daily. Um, we've heard a lot about the health benefits and the mental benefits of meditation. So that causes our overall stress levels to go down. Talk, talk about our- meditation for a second because... I think every you know every culture does it different. Every person does it differently, and I think I think a lot of us aren't quite sure what constitutes meditation. Like, did you have to sit there and get into a state of Zen, like thinking, or what? What could constitute meditation? Sure, I'm going to give you an oversimplistic definition of meditation, okay. but I think it'll help understand. Yeah, it's just a way to stay in the moment and just be be the moment. I mean, you, it's as simple as that, Matt. It's just a way to connect with your inner self, stop the chatter in your mind. You, even if you can't stop the chatter, that's the most difficult part that people feel when they're when they asked to meditate. They're like, you know, my face is itching, you know, I, I, oh, I have those laundry list of things that I need to get to, and th- thoughts like that that are passing you by, right? And meditation is a state where you can be able, you can watch those thoughts pass by. You cannot be those thoughts. Hmm. And just watch those thoughts pass by and you, and you, in the moment. You separate yourself, your, mm-hmm. your I would call it my spirit, but I separate myself from my thoughts, my moods, the moment. And I can actually almost sit as an outsider and, and see those things. Exactly. You got it right, man. Well, that's yeah. powerful. And, and by the way, that like you can do that at a light uh, waiting in your car, right? You can do that 
waiting in a line at the grocery store when you're stressed and you have 500 things to do today? Absolutely, Matt. That is correct. Um, meditation doesn't involve having to sit in a place for 20 minutes. There are what we call nowadays micro-meditation moments. You know, you just take one to three minutes anytime when you have time in your day. And ideally, you should do it like five times a day. And you just focus on your breathing. It's as simple as that. Just focus on how shallow or deep your breath is. And like I mentioned a little bit earlier, focus on your breath traveling inside you, reaching that belly, filling your belly up, and then seeing how it just depletes your belly and gets out of you. It's as simple as that. Meditation just constitutes being able to focus on that breath uh, a few times a day for a minute or so. Yeah. No, that's powerful. And And, and what's your – do you have another one? Another uh, trip, another trick that we can use to manage our temper? Absolutely, Matt. Another trip, uh, uh, trick or tip is to be able to journal, right? Write out your feelings at the moment in a journal. It's a journal that's private to you. That's not something you have to share with anybody. You don't have to email a letter to anybody about how you felt. Just write out what you felt. And that gives you a way to help reduce the intensity of the emotion that you were feeling that was causing that uh, temper burst. Yeah. And it also helps you clarify your thoughts and feelings. It helps you know better. And, you know, it could possibly even lead to help solving the problem that was frustrating you, at, uh, uh, you know. But because when you go back to, a, uh, to what you've written after a moment of time, you may be able to see a different perspective yeah. that you were not able to see in the heat of the moment. I, you know what? And I think that's – I think we need more journaling. Plus, there's just the inherent ability to get your energy out on the issue by just writing. Writing is kind of tedious. It takes effort. And so your ability to journal it out might also get the energy out. Uh, Gia, these are great ideas. Go for, you know, go exercise, splash your face, meditate, write it out, focus on your breath, count to five. As we wrap this up, Gia, what would you say if, if there's one thing that I could do, all of us could do today to immediately start to impact our ability to, to manage our temper, what would you say is the one thing we should start with, the one thing we should focus on first? I think it's mindfulness, Matt. Being able to be present at the moment, completely, fully present and engaged with whatever it is you're doing. It's like, let's say, for example, you're typing. Being aware of the physical touch of your keyboard and focusing on that, that's being mindful. Yeah. When I'm talking to you, I want to be fully present and engaged with you, Matt. That's being mindful. And that's, yeah, and that's, that's Gia Ganesh, uh, a great uh, interview we did with Gia, uh, who's a career strategist and an empowerment coach, helping us all manage our tempers, helping us to be more likable, honestly, and be more in charge and in command of our own reactivity. Powerful stuff, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're doing what we can to give you the tools to make it through this crazy thing we call life. We'll continue more straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, along with Terry and Becca. The gang is gathered and, uh, boy, three hostages home. President Trump up early in the morning making um, a great... A great announcement about three Americans brought back from North Korea and 
The latest and greatest news is apparently the North Korean summit is set for Singapore. It's happening in Singapore. Um, You know, some were saying, hey, maybe the DMZ zone. That would be really cool. Let's do it there. Hey, let's try it there. No, it's going to be in Singapore. And then we joked last hour, maybe it's going to be at a Trump uh, at a Trump hotel. But I'm not seeing that anywhere in here. So President Trump uh, having some pretty enormous success in the foreign uh, relations world. So Bloomberg has an article here that says, why Singapore? Why not? And they said it offers excellent security, high priority for U.S. president. It has a track record of putting together top-level international gatherings at short notice. Singapore has both a North Korean embassy and security ties with the U.S. Trump uh, ruled uh, security ties with the U.S. Trump ruled out his earlier suggestion for the meeting at the demilitarized zone and all that. So, yeah. Um, what other meetings have been? They've had uh, Chinese President uh, Xi Jinping close the uh, chose the South Asian nation for the historic meeting with the uh, Taiwan president back in November 2015. That was a big deal. That meeting, the first between the leaders of those two governments. Uh, since the Civil War ended their relationship 70 years earlier. So it was kind of a big deal. They wanted to make sure everything. yeah. Because everyone's got requests. I want this. I want that. The room needs to be this big, it's, that kind of stuff. It's got to be so. a neutral court. Yeah. And so Singapore's probably more neutral than the DMZ would be because he's the president of the United States coming into the DMZ. You know, but half of the building would be on North Korean soil. So it's this is probably – it makes a lot of sense. Plus right. – isn't wasn't it Singapore that was the the place where they could still do caning, where they cane you if you think that's get in what, trouble or you litter or something yeah. like that? So, so I mean, the benefit is is you know worst case scenario, someone could get caned. Okay, great. So positive notes. What you're nothing, saying? <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Who doesn't love a good caning once in a while? That's um, that's great news though. So the summit is set, and uh, do we know the dates? June twelfth. June twelfth. So the president has a little over a month to get ready for the big summit. Right. I mean, you'd want to get in shape, don't sure. you think? Do some sit-ups, Do maybe. Some sit-ups, get a haircut. Little push-ups, maybe have some something to say. Well, like just, yeah. Last night, welcoming home. Yeah, he had a wonderful welcome home message. Three prisoners from another country, they were released. You're like, yes, we have our yeah. we have our people back. Big night, big moment. What did the president say? Big TV moment. All yeah. the TV channels took it live. He said, this is a special night for these three really great people, and congratulations on them being in this country. Yep. There you have it. Nailed it. Congratulations for them being in this country. On Twitter this t- uh, today for the announcement of this meeting on June 12th, he says, we will both try to make it a very special moment for world peace. That's great. Yeah. So they're already kind of sending out signals that, hey, we're together on this. We're going to make this a good thing for He everybody. also says that if, it, if it's a bad deal, he'll stand up respectively and leave the room. Yeah. Yeah. He probably, yeah. He's probably going to back that down a little bit because it seems like Kim Jong-un keeps giving these wins like, hey, I'm going to pull down my nuclear stuff, mm-hmm. testing. I'm going to do this. Take the three hostages. They, they even there's and now even, Dennis Rodman. Yeah, there's even some uh, speculation that he'll let uh, international inspectors into some of their uh, wow. where they're enriching uranium this is and, and show these. They have plenty of they have multiple place locations, but one of them show them how they're doing it, what they're mm-hmm. doing, maybe how they're dialing it back to show kind of intent. Yeah. This is good. It's all speculation, but could happen. And and President Trump getting a lot of the credit, and some credit probably ought to be going to China as well, who mm-hmm. 
But many would say president's been twisting China as well. Like, come on, make this happen. It's a big win. Or maybe North Korea is just tired of not having any money. No, you and, and it might because Kim Jong Un, which which goes back to all the sanctions and yeah. different things we put on them economically, and it just after a while, it's like okay. I mean, there's a day you need a Twinkie, right? And the Twinkie's probably twelve grand over there. Downside: we want to sign an international agreement. We just walked away from two. Well, but now, but it's interesting. But maybe this will then start to teach Iran: if you want to do it, you got to do a different deal, and mm. we're going to play hardball with you next. We're going to combine but, with the Saudis but, but and the just, Jordanians. They just and, did that with seven nations at the same time and yeah. came up with the agreement that we that were just when the United yeah. States walked you keep away bringing from. Bringing that one up, but well, they just went through the hardball situation yeah. to get to the agreement they had. Right. You just don't trust the Don. It's all right. They're just going to start enriching uranium today because well, they what, can. The biggest bummer is that Michael Cohen may not be available to help with the Iranian deal. Right. He kept selling access, and yeah. there's some people that he gave access or tried to or at least attempted to give access yeah. to that may have been nefarious. We don't know. We'll see. Who knows? Who knows? But they but many people feel that um he'll be indicted soon, Michael Cohen. Oh yeah. Something, on, something's gonna go on. They have so many records on what he did or we don't even know what he did that they feel like there's going to be something that But he did receive some money to... from some big companies to yes. to get access Which to the president. Isn't uncommon. No, people I've, do that quite a bit to try to figure out what's the new administration. How do we, you know, how do we approach? He's them? like what's a lobbyist. Their... He's less yeah. an, an attorney or a fixer. He's like a lobbyist. Let's get to the we'll rest see. of the headlines, Terry. What else should we be focused on? This happened yesterday afternoon. President Donald Trump threatened to take away the quote "fake news" as media credentials in a tweet. This was on Wednesday. The fake news is working overtime. Just reported that despite the tremendous success we're having with the economy and all things else, ninety-one percent of the network news. About me is negative, or he put in parentheses, fake. Why do we work so hard on working with the media when it's corrupt? Take away credentials, question mark. In a statement, White House Correspondents Association President Margaret Tlaib said that a president preventing a free and independent press from covering the workings of our republic would be an unconscionable assault on the First Amendment. Trump famously banned certain news outlets from attending events in his 2016 campaign, and his propensity for attacking fake news has gained popularity with international governments. Right. Yesterday during the White House press conference, it was brought up, and they, the press, the White House representative acted as if it was the biggest offense. You even asked the question, we're holding a press conference, we're talking to the media now. <laughs> We wouldn't be doing this if we wanted to limit your access. And we're like, well, he's talking about it on Twitter. Ah, we're having a meeting now. Wait, wait, when you say takeaway credentials, is that, I mean, like, what does that mean? You're the Associated Press. You can now not cover White House meetings. You're not allowed into any of the White House meetings. Okay, so that just means, I uh, gotcha. Just kick you out altogether because they don't like how you're covering the news. It's like losing your student ID. Ah, it's like take when, away your badge. When you call me in the morning and say, I forgot my ID, I can't get in their building, and I go, I'm not coming out to get you. We're Every not allowed day. to do that. That's we just ridiculous. wave. <laughs> Sorry. I'm going to take away my credentials. Yeah. New evidence shows that, that third-hand smoke or residual chemicals left on indoor surfaces by tobacco smoke could be harmful, according uh -oh. to the Washington Post. Research suggests that tobacco residue can be absorbed through the skin, ingested, and inhaled months, even years, after the smoke is dissipated. Wow. Uh, two studies suggest that third-hand smoke increases the risk of lung cancer, liver damage, and diabetes in mice. Studies also suggest that smoke residue remains on floors, walls, and months after people smoke no longer 
after people no longer smoke in that area. And that wow. smoke residue can seep into non-smoking areas and become airborne again in air conditioning systems. Oh, boy. In reaction to the growing research, the American Academy of Pediatrics issues a warning last year about the potential risks of third-hand smoke. Weird. We're still onto that. Yeah. Even though we've pretty much driven smoking outdoors into yeah. small little isolated areas, we still could be breathing that stuff in. It's good to know. Yeah. Authorities, this is our, finally, authorities say two people who made a bet now know how far their car can go into the water hmm. and still drive at Lake Havasu in oh, western Arizona. Brother. The answer is, uh, what do you think the answer is? If you drive your car into the water, how far can it go? Well, if it's completely submerged, I would give it 20 feet. Yep. Apparently, the answer is not very far. The Mojave <laughs> no County. One knows how far it goes. The Mojave County Sheriff's Office said the water disabled vehicle. Uh, the water disabled the vehicle as it entered the water, so it didn't even get off the beach. Apparently, oh, causing it to become stuck while it was approximately halfway submerged. During the investigation, it was learned that one of the occupants of the vehicle had an active misdemeanor arrest warrant. Oh yeah, and he was taken into custody, booked into jail. The car was towed from the lake. So the the, the lesson there is you don't have to drive your car into the lake just because you made a bet, right? Unless and you have one of those snorkel uh, carburetors. That, yeah, if you have the extra exhaust pipe yeah, that sticks out the top. Yeah, then you can drive for miles. And that takes a huge conversion to your vehicle, so you'd know if that's possible. But <laughs> and, and don't do it if you have a warrant. Yeah, that's a good point. You, you have a bench warrant out for your arrest. Probably, I don't know if the guy knew he had a bench warrant. It may be one of those things where you're like, oh, wait, did I have a warrant? Maybe I shouldn't be driving into the lake. Maybe one of those sort hey. of conversations before you hit the well, gas. Well, shouldn't there have been a pre-conversation even before your question of your warrant? Yeah. Like, hey, could this ruin my car? <laughs> How about that one? It specifically says in most user manuals not to do that. Yeah. yeah. Don't, don't drive into water. Yeah. yeah. So they Boy. found out. So now you know. Don't drive your car into the water. Great advice for everyone out there that was thinking today, hey, maybe I'm going to drive into that lake. And try not to break the law if you're hiding from a bench warrant. That's a great point. Or unaware, yeah. Yeah. By the way, in fact, everybody today, go call the courts and see if you have a warrant out for your arrest. It's good to know. Before you take that shortcut to work. That's right. Across the lake. It seems easy, folks, but uh, this is the advice we have to give you. We shouldn't have to do this, but we do it because we care. Well, we will continue more straight ahead. We're going to be talking about resilient kids and uh, some pretty interesting ways to, uh, to get, you know, resiliency out of your kids so they have durability. They can stand the winds of life that uh, are waiting for them. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Is your child developing resilience? Is there a way to measure that attribute? Well, Jenna Pincott, author of the new book, Wits, Guts, and Grit, are all natural biohacks for raising smart, resilient kids. She joins us today to teach us some of these tips and tricks uh, that can help our kid become more resilient, able to handle the difficulties that life's going to be throwing at them. Jenna, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I apologize in advance for my voice. Oh, yeah. I got a cold and... With two kids, it's hard to recover from laryngitis. <laughs> I know. It really is. And, you know, you're coming through loud and clear, and we'll try to not uh, keep you too long. Is it – Jenna, th- this book, I-, I really like it because the idea that um, 
there's just a we talk about grit, we talk about resiliency. It's kind of the new buzzword. But mm-hmm. um, really, this is just about being able to withstand the future. We need our kids to be flexible enough to handle life. Yes, yes. Is, and I feel that kids these days are just more stressed than ever. Um, even little ones. I have a seven-year-old. <laughs> even even at that age, I feel they're under a lot of pressure to perform. Yeah. Um, more than in my generation. It, it's it, it, there's a ton of pressure, isn't there? And it seems like technology's uh, you know even creating different kinds of pressures. Parents are are doing everything they can to, uh, in a way, I guess we might be helping or hurting because we we might be you know pushing them a little bit harder, expecting a lot more. But at the same time, it seems like a lot of times we do a lot of stuff for our kids that we should let them do themselves. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I think kids these days just aren't getting enough unstructured time. Um, I live in New York City, and every kid is so scheduled here. Um, I've been making, trying very hard to give my child unstructured time and, and time in nature to, to the extent that I can. Yeah, just time to be a kid, huh? Yes, yes. Do you, because um, one of the points you do bring up, and this is maybe an, a reality of just living in New York as well, but you talk about how green spaces really help the kids' minds to wander. Yes. Um, we have, fortunately, uh, we have Central Park here, but that's about as close to nature as we get. Um, you know, the kids spend so much time on focused attention, paying attention to school. I mean, even even TV and sports require focused attention. And, um, you know, we, 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 I think we tend to value that uh, focused attention a lot, but we don't value so much the flip side of that, which is like daydreaming. And it turns out that nature kind of really helps that daydreaming mode kick in. It gets get kids out of focused attention mode, which is very good for them, good for their brains, good for creativity. In fact, you talk, don't you talk about um, ways to get people and, and even our children to kind of change their thinking. Uh, you mentioned just the, the benefit of changing the light bulb. Absolutely. Um, the light alone, um, you know, we, we are addicted to very bright light, I feel. Um, you know, the, kid, the kids, uh, most schools have fluorescent light. Um, and uh, as it turns out, uh, you know, a bright light really does increase focused attention. Um, there have been studies that show that they that on, on some types of tests, they score better when under bright light. But in dim light, um, dim light helps actually increase divergent thinking. Um, mm. There have been tests, there's a type of test called unusual uses task, um, in which kids are like asked to come up with unique uses for like a brick and a safety pin, something like that. And, and they come up with much more original and unique ideas when the room is no more brighter than, you know, like a parking lot at night. Mm. It's that sort of like associative uh, daydreaming mode. Interesting. Isn't that funny? That and, and this is what's great about living in this day and age is this research that we keep finding, little ditties, little just little points, I mean, like the dim light increasing divergent mm. thinking. What other um, hacks have you found that are just kind of natural, part of life? Well, I think a lot of it, you know, I I, I looked at diet um, to a large extent. Um, and something something um, interesting um, with uh, with flavonoids, um, which are the plant dyes that make um, 
you know, like make blueberries very blue and oranges orange and uh, cocoa brown. Um, and uh, flavonoids make plants resilient against the sun and the climate. Um, but when we eat them, they also have, you know, these amazing effects on us, too. Hmm. And there are some emerging studies like uh, a group in, um, at the University of Reading in England. They looked at the effects of blueberry consumption in kids. Um, they're the only group that's looking at it in kids. There are a bunch of you know, uh, studies on adults, but in kids, it was very interesting. Um, and they found that, um, you know, when children eat these flavonoids, even blueberries in this case, they perform better on memory tasks later on. Um, you know, flavonoids bring, um, they, they help uh, bring more blood flow to the brain. Um, but in any case, in these, in these studies, the, the, the kid and I, I, I tested my own daughter, too, and it was, it was very interesting on this hmm. auditory verbal test. She was able to memorize more words later on. Really? Um, it's like her memory was stickier. That's so interesting. And it's, um, again, something as beneficial just as like a blueberry. Uh, we always yeah. think of it just as like, you know, it's a it's a healthy snack. It's a great snack, but hidden inside. And that may actually be telling us more about, you know, if we're not focusing on flavonoids and we're focusing on other things in our diet, we may just be missing a simple ability. Our kids may be missing, a, you know, that stickier brain to remember things by. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, food, uh, nutrition shapes the brain. Um, and uh, there's something called BDNF, which helps neurons grow in the brain, blood flow, all this, you know, helps synapses, um, which all in turn, you know, help learning and memory and the hippocamp- and hippocampus development. It's, it's, um, it's fascinating to, to study. It's, you know, all these little tiny things are cumulative, I feel. Yeah. Um, and they all uh, build up to resilience. Talk talk to me a little bit. I, I think um, you're pretty familiar with the vagus nerve, right, and the impact mm-hmm. that it has on try on us. Try to explain because a lot of I mean, there's a lot of anxiety out there. There's a lot of I mean, even ADHD. There's depression. There's a lot of stuff going on, and it seems like there um, some of it may be connected to the vagus nerve. And I think most of us don't even know what the vagus nerve is. Yeah, the vagus nerve, it's part of the um, parasympathetic um, nervous system. And I actually uh, <clears throat> write about this in a, the last chapter of the book, which is on um, heart rate variability. And, um, well, to get a little bit technical, you know, there are two branches of the nervous system. There's a sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. And there's a sort of push and pull between them. And the sympathetic nervous system is like auto drive. It keeps, you know, your heart ticking steadily no matter what to get us. You know, through an ordeal, and it speeds up the heartbeat and everything. And when we're feeling stressed, and the parasympathetic, which is um, you know, the nervous, uh, the vagus nerve, um, is part of the parasympathetic nervous system. It's like, it's like the brakes, and you know, stops the signal travels down the vagus nerve from the brain, and it slows down the heart rate and and increases the heart rate variability. So um, when I when I talk about the vagus nerve with my daughter. Um, I said, and every inhale, you know, the sympathetic nervous system dominates, but every time you exhale, the parasympathetic system sort of pulls back. Mm. And, that, and that pullback, it's a little bit different every time as the body self-regulates. Um, so we're talking about heart rate, rate regular variability and the, and the vagus nerve, you know, they're, 
there's difference um, in, in, in timing in the intervals between beats. There might be one second between beats and then 0.8 and then 1.2 then 0.7. Huh. A little bit different every time. And that's your body self-regulating, you know, the change in the environment, which is a very good thing. And, and if we can as, if we can learn or even teach our children a little bit more about breathing techniques, about managing yeah. that vagus nerve, then we our kids could be calmer. They could manage their environment a little bit better. In fact, it's interesting in your research that you cited um, uh, kids, children are better at managing the parasympathetic uh, vagus or the vagus nerve than adults are generally. Yeah, they seem to have a higher heart rate variability generally. I. We, uh, when I when I had my daughter, my seven year old, use this um, technique called uh, we call it Buddha breath. Those inhales um, and long exhales, mm-hmm. um, uh, like for her for her age, it's like a three second inhale and a six second exhale. And I um, I we have, you know now everyone has a smartphone, so it's really easy to track this. Yeah, uh, your heart rate variability. So I give her the app, um, and she can as she controls her breathing, she can see her variability go up and up and up and up. So it's sort of not not just a way of tracking your vagus, you know, vagal activity or your heart rate variability. It's also a biofeedback too. So it helps her calm down. It's amazing um, because but, uh, I've heard mm-hmm. I've heard the vagus nerve may be a, a big key to why we have so much anxiety, um, and because yes. it, it is a nerve that actually goes, I guess, from the brain to the feet, right? It, I mean, it literally goes all the way through Absolutely. your system. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, every exactly. organ is connected to it. And it might be why, you know, some of us have more active acid in our stomachs or why our respirations aren't as controllable or, or until we learn to control the, the parasympathetic vagal nerve. Yes, yes. And, uh, and even things like, uh, you know, I, I write in a book about um, uh, probiotics, probiotics that speak to the brain through the vagus nerve. Is that in this case mm. going up from the gut to the brain? Um, and forms of um, microbes, lactobacillus and bifidobacteria, they, they're, they're, they're found to you know, be able to send signals up the vagus nerve and may help uh, decrease stress and increase resilience. That's amazing. So, I mean, these are big findings. These really are. And um, I, I guess because we hear we hear stuff like grit, you know, you got to help your kids be gritty and, and be able to, to make the tough decisions and be resilient. But um, a lot of it is honestly just it's it's just so natural if we would kind of get back to the basics. Uh, give us a couple more things, you know, as a as a worried parent, if somebody's out there and they sense that their children, you know, need a little bit more focus on on resiliency. What other things? Any other recommendations you'd give our parents? Well, let's see. I um, you know, I focus on um on um, magnesium in a chapter, which seems sort of surprising. What's magnesium? And I've I become a bit of a missionary for magnesium. And it started as um, a sort of crisis because I learned that our fruits and our vegetables, don't they contain like half the magnesium and nutrients that they, that they did two generations ago. So as we're, the, the, even our, you know, fruits and vegetables are not as healthy as they used to be. Yeah. And they don't contain nearly as much magnesium. And it, it turns out that magnesium deficiency has all sorts of terrible outcomes, like mem- memory loss, inattention. Um, you know, kids get a little bit spacier. They find it hard to organize their thoughts as much. And all uh, well, that affects learning and resilience. And just, uh, and, and most Americans, children included, are deficient in magnesium. Hmm. 
How do you um, what, what what do you feed your child to get more magnesium? So I tried to give it, you know, I like the idea of everything wholesome and, and natural. So I try to give them more more fruits and vegetables. But I have some re- resistant kids. Yeah. Um, so I end up I end up supplementing, um, giving them a magnesium supplement, and for them it's easiest in the form of a magnesium oil spray. Stings a bit, so I put it only on the soles of their feet mm. at night, and it, it actually it, it, it's quite remarkable. It really does calm them down. I, I don't think it's just a placebo effect. Really, yeah. Um, it really short circuits the stress cycle, and and there's a science to it too. Magnesium, you know, has an influence over the pituitary gland. It, um, it guards a receptor in the brain that um, that, uh, that enables synaptic flexibility. So there. There, there is something to it. I wish there's more research. Unfortunately, magnesium, you know, dirt cheap. So yeah. There's not a lot of not a lot of research funds being put into it. <laughs> not but. a lot of money in the magnesium yeah. world. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Jenna, uh, this is great stuff. If if I asked you the one thing, I always want to know kind of what's the one thing we can just we can all do today to help our kids with uh, their their resiliency. What what would you say is the one thing every parent could make sure they're doing today? I would say give give the kids, to the extent that you can, a stronger connection to nature and the outside world and and to reinforce you know, that connection to their own internal states. Um, also, introduce kids to science. It was so much fun experimenting with my daughter and trying to ex- explain these concepts to her and encourage, you know, tinkering and finding out ways to apply science to their own lives and their bodies and, mm. and, and being touch, in touch with their own internal state. That's great advice. Great advice. Well, Jenna Pincott, thank you so much. And take care of your laryngitis. Uh, not an easy thing. Not an easy thing. Jenna Pincott. And again, you can get uh, more information about uh, her writings. The name of the book is Wits, Guts, and Grit, All Natural Biohacks for Raising Smart, Resilient Kids. Wonderful stuff, folks. And uh, really, there's think about how little we really know about our bodies, about ourselves, And if we could just gather a little more information, we might make that road a little bit easier for our children and the next generation. We'll continue the journey. Up next, we'll do some empty news. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back. It's time to get to our empty news segment. This is the news you didn't know you needed to know. The empty news team. First on the scene, fifth on facts. Why be fifth on facts when you've already arrived first on the scene? You don't focus on the details. Just move along. That's how this whole segment works. Seems like we ought to move that to be at least third on the facts. Okay. Details. So you've had some issues um, here on campus when it comes to parking and. Yes. The tra- or what parking enforcement that office uh, came backing, and you, I've backed into people, backed into people. I've been Just ticketed parking in general has been a challenge yes that's why Matt spent all those years in prison yes that's one reason hard time for parking violations BYU parking it's rough it's way rough a resourceful driver in western China found the perfect way of avoiding a parking ticket 
When leaving her car in a no parking zone, she would simply leave a fake parking ticket in her window so that policemen would think that one of their colleagues had already fined her. Oh, yeah, they've already right? ticketed her. It was the perfect crime. Most policemen would only check if the date was correct and move on. And if one of them actually paid enough attention to figure out that the parking ticket was fake, the woman would simply say that she had no idea that she was the victim of a prank. Who's pranking me, those kids? So it's a genius plan, totally yeah, safe. Brilliant. It's Unless illegal. someone actually saw her putting the ticket in the window, there was no way to actually prove she was guilty, right? Right. So it says that was until the woman parked her car next to that of an undercover police car with a dash cam turned on. Oh, boy. So they have the video of her doing it. Dash cam footage showed the woman exiting the car, casually slapping the fake parking ticket on her windshield before heading off to take care of her business, confident that she wouldn't get an actual ticket. Unfortunately for her, a police officer arrives to check the ticket almost immediately. Upon returning to her car, the police lecture her about illegal documents and forging official documents and uh, issue her an actual parking ticket. Oh, wow. Now, with their new systems in China, with the uh, facial recognition... Yeah. They hit like with jaywalking, they'll they'll shame you on a billboard right in that area. Oh, how when you, great! You cr- oh. If you jaywalk, they will shame you right on the board. They all, I also saw this loser crosses the street outside of a crosswalk oh, as you're walking across the, the 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 crosswalk, and it puts like your phone number, and it just totally outs you Colin, publicly. One eight hundred. They also set up where they have, um, like, sometimes they'll put up, uh, like, little cement poles, barriers yeah. uh, uh, to keep cars from entering the sidewalk. And uh, those, they have them set up where they have, like, jets of water that shoot you if you, jay- if you wow. jaywalk. They're just getting really... Punitive. They're really punitive that way. They also have, we talked about the social score yeah. that they're implementing in China. So if you jaywalk or use fake parking tickets you or do anything, you start losing your social score, which could affect if you could get a, a mortgage, if you yeah. get plane tickets, if you travel. They all this check your social crazy. score. So you got to be careful over It just there. sounds like a dystopian novel. Yeah, it does. Or, you know, TV shows that have been around for a little bit here. Uh, Greyhound says it's investigating how a bus meant to take a passengers from Cleveland to New York ended up in Toledo. Uh-oh. The uh, the bus which left Cleveland several hours late on a couple weeks ago was headed east through Pennsylvania when it started experiencing problems. The company said the driver was instructed to head back to Cleveland and get a new bus, but instead drove about two hours past Cleveland to Toledo. Yeah, I mean, he, well, he his grandma was having an issue. The driver then turned around and went back to Cleveland. The bus was supposed to leave Cleveland at two thirty in the morning, but didn't get rolling till around six, so it was late getting out. Yeah, and then. He drives, had some problem and was instructed to come back, and he ended up going to Toledo instead. And then <laughs> the whole while, they're not going to New York. Right. But they just drove around for several hours. Passengers said they spent seven hours going in a big circle. Uh, well, you know, that's horrible, like at 30,000 feet. Right. Like, have you ever gone to an airport and you were actually, you would have been early, but. The plane can't land early because they've, you know, there's timing issues. So we just circle the airport. That's okay. Thirty thousand feet. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. But if you're like in a bus, yeah, you got to be thinking, hey, I could jump out right here. <laughs> I could get out right here and just take an Uber mm-hmm. to my house. This cabin is not pressurized. You <laughs> <laughs> just get out the window. But they keep like, no, say, hey, hey, you stay seated. So that'd be maddening. What would be the compensation? Do you think for the passengers? Because that, that's what usually companies no, it's do. Obvious. Is they, it's so, a it's a free hand sanitizer, a free wipey, maybe a chapstick. Take it to the back room. 
Because string I mean, backpacks. <laughs> you obviously would refund tickets because they didn't get their trip to yeah. New York. But then, what else would you do? Well, I would. I might. If because I, the, I might try to tell them we were taking them through Amish country, <laughs> like a tour a through tour. the Amish country. All right, You're, and it just sort of didn't go right. Yeah. Well, you know they're going to say we're going to give you one free ride on Greyhound. Yeah, but but why would you do that after that happened? Have you, you have you ridden Greyhound lately? No. So on nine eleven, mm. that's not lately, but on nine eleven, that's how I got back from L.A. Oh, that's right. You were in Los Angeles. But when you that stop in every city mm-hmm. on the way back. So you know all those cities you drive by, like on the way to California. Yeah. Well, on a Greyhound, you actually stop in every one of them. Oh. And then the bus stops, and the guy's like, "Whatever, Cedar City, Utah, ten minutes. Smoke them if you got them." And everyone gets off, and they all go smoke, and then they all get back on. Wow. Nightmare. So this these people must have been dying. Do they have direct routes? Probably, but like direct. But you still got to stop in four sit four of the bigger cities. Right. Yeah. And it's not even that much cheaper than flying. That's no. what amazes me. Is the neat thing is you see America, and and you smell it too. <laughs> you smell America. You it's like one of those 4D amusement it. park rides. Was that yeah. a skunk? Wow! What was that? Was that a cattle Did farm? Did we just hit something? It's amazing. Experience every pothole. Uh, uh, other news you, news you don't really need to know, but are kind of fun to have. Yeah. So you can tell people about it. A suspect fleeing from police in Florida ended up needing their help when he ran into a swamp and sank up to his neck in thick mud. Really? The Pasco County Sheriff's Office said deputies attempted to stop a driver for speeding, and the vehicle nearby struck deputies during the ensuing pursuit, so there's some danger there. The driver, identified as Paul Andrew Smith, got out of his vehicle after a short chase and fled on foot into a nearby swamp. Okay. This is according to the sheriff's report. Footage recorded by a canine handler's body camera shows the dog named Knox locating Smith in the swamp where he was submerged up to his neck in mud. The sheriff's office said he took several deputies working together to pull Smith free from the muck. Smith, who was found to be wanted by authorities in a neighboring county, was arrested on charges of fleeing, aggravated assault law, uh, assault on a law enforcement officer, uh, and violation of probation. But you can see what he's doing. He's just running through yeah. the swamp, and all of a sudden, whoop, and you slip into like some quicksand I, situation. He's running amok. Uh, he's running amok. Literally. I. This is where I'd be a horrible cop, because I'd just be... Eh, Hey, I'm gonna. Hey, I'm gonna let you go today. Yeah, because I'm not going out there to get him. <laughs> yeah, someone had to go out and get in there and get. Oh, it's bad. hey, sorry for well, the no. chase, buddy. You're good. You wait for the rookie. Yeah. Hey, can I get a rookie down here at uh, this? Uh, yeah, if you need to do like a dumpster dive for evidence, you get the rookie to do. We're mud bogging right now. I need a rookie down here. Give me a rookie. Any rookies that. available? <laughs> That's sad. Any other news? A federal judge sentenced a 23-year-old man to more than 10 years in federal prison on, uh, for his role in a bold string of armed robberies in mm. Anchorage, Alaska, over one week in August 2016. During the spree in which he and a childhood friend held up a, a, a liquor store, gas station, finally a downtown bank, uh, the guy, Kaleem uh, Fredericks, uh, searched online some uh, his on his phone how to rob banks, and how to sell diamonds for cash. Yeah. According to the indictment. By the way, case. very, very popular searches. At one of the robberies, they stole $25,000. The pair went on a spinning spree, bought plane tickets to Miami. Police approached the men at the airport as they waited to board a flight. Uh, they had backpacks stuffed with $20 bills. Uh, so they had a plan. 
How to rob a bank. How to rob a bank. I just Googled that, and there are a surprising amount of articles on this front page. No, really. don't rob a bank. That's the step. You can look. Just well, actually, don't act. Probably well, like now, two minutes before security comes in yeah. here and wants well, to know why now, I'm doing this on a work computer. Nobody that uses that computer can rob a bank either. Right. It, it's, it's, it's got that record on there. You Sorry, probably, Terry. You probably ought to leave a note that says that you search for how to rob a bank and don't rob a bank. Okay. Yeah, just to keep everyone else... Because we don't want the FBI in here looking at that. That's what we got post-its for. Unbelievable. Okay, fun stuff. Hey, straight ahead, our good friends from BYU Sports Nation will be joining us. We will find out what's coming up on their show, plus our hero of the day, all straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. Yes, it is time to go down now and visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation to see what's coming up on their show in about 10 minutes. Spencer and Jerem, are you there? We are here. Hi, Matt. Hello, my good friends. What's going always on? Always nice to be with you. It's always nice to be with yous. And here's a question for you. Okay. Did you guys hear the good news about uh, three um, the three people that were released by North Korea? Yeah. And so that's all good. And I that's thought cool. we need some enlightenment because Spencer Dunn lived in South Korea. Yes. So, Spence, how do the South Koreans think about the North Koreans? What do they what's their thought about them? It's interesting the dynamic that the Korean people, speaking of the South Korean people, have towards and with North Koreans. I think there is a level of pity for what the commoner in North Korea has to go through. Mm, yeah. As far as the leaders up there, the Koreans, in large part on the forefront, think that the leadership is crazy just like the rest of the world does. However, if an American says to a South Korean, man, North Korea is crazy, there's a little bit of offense taken. Really? Because there's still uh, one Korea. hope of unity, right? There's yeah. still one Korea in some far-off fantasy land, which, you know, they're taking some good steps toward it. But I kind of compare it to the family situation where you know your brother's crazy and he's done some stupid things. <laughs> yeah. And, and he married that weird girl. But if somebody else girl. attacks your brother, right. you still are like, Your blood. You, you don't know my brother. Your blood. You don't know. You don't know. You don't, he, has, he has good in his heart. You know? <laughs> like, it's that relationship. Totally. So, oh, totally. That's good. It, it was fascinating to. To learn that. Did you guys ever think that uh, Dennis Rodman would be such a pivotal player in the North Korean crisis? He was a pivotal player for the Pistons <laughs> and Bulls. I don't see why not. <laughs> and by the way, he got one of the greatest shots in on a cameraman of all time. Yes, he did. Do you guys remember those days? Yeah, he paid a hefty fine for that. Did he? I think he got yeah. sued for it as well. <gasps> did he? Good. He yeah. should have been. It was a squirrely kick. Squirrely is the word. Hey, um, now you guys are still doing your show, right? Of course we Indeed. are. Yeah. By the way, tomorrow I have a big announcement about my show. I haven't, what? I haven't made an announcement yet, but tomorrow— I even tried to spoil it two weeks ago. You tried, and um, we caught it. But I will be making a big announcement about my show tomorrow, and there's actually really good news— about the announcement that I'll be making tomorrow. Well, so let's you'll... just spoil it right now. Hey, why don't you just say Matt's it right now? That's going six hours a day. <laughs> why, why, why wait? I'm not going six hours. Grab a Snickers. <laughs> uh, everybody grab a Snickers and a, and a comfy Lazy Boy chair, and we're just going to talk about it right now. No, tomorrow is the announcement. But you guys still have your show. What's going to be on your show today? Oh, baby. What a show we have lined up today. What? In the spirit of Avengers Infinity War. Oh, yeah. Whether you've seen it or not, it's a spoiler-free zone. 
Good. But we have tied the six biggest games of the BYU football season into the gauntlet from Avengers Infinity War. Really? BYU's football fate, mostly their bowl game hopes, lie in the balance of what happens against the gauntlet. Really? Yes. I'll tell you how many games we think BYU will win of those six in the gauntlet. We'll ID those as well. Plus, Gavin Baxter, return missionary on the BYU men's basketball team, back and ready to return to the team. Yoli Childs called him the most athletic player BYU fans will ever see. We'll tell you wow. why or why not he is. Plus, he's going to join us in the studio. Of and course. the most clutch performance of the year. It might have happened yesterday. No kidding. Hold on. In what sport? On the golf course. <laughs> in the NCAA regional. Cool. Uh-huh. See? Uh-huh. That's a good show. Well, it's you game day it. for the Bad Cats and yeah, do, do they still have a chance in the semifinals. Like I called their, their WCC tournament hopes essentially on life support. Yeah. And that's probably generous. Is there any oxygen left? Hmm. Great is, question. Is there any hope left? See, what I love about you guys is you, you not only have the best questions, you always answer the questions. During the show. Well, we, during the show. We, yeah, yeah, we, yeah, not during this show, but during your show. We, we always ask questions, and a lot of times we never answer them. Yeah, we don't know the answers always. Those are called rhetorical questions. Mm-hmm. That's how we roll. Hey, did I hear somewhere that we were supposed to be getting a Russian player for BYU and we're not getting him? Oh, correct. Did I just offend someone? Well, it's a sad day. Well, there's multiple things here. There's one, the, there's an English test. Is your score high enough to get into BYU? Stupid TOEFL. <laughs> and then the other is whether the guy wants to be here or not. No, are, are you serious? Our testing may not have allowed him in? Well, that's the case academically for everybody. Right? Yeah, I guess you got to pass true. the test. Yeah. This is not Plus uncommon to Brigham Young University. Live your life a certain way through the honor code, right? Wow. Certain certain things you got to do to be here. Because I, play here. I was always told that's what all the Mormon missionaries are doing out in the field is recruiting players for BYU sports. And they're working out all day. On their mission trip. I don't know what kind of mission they went on. <laughs> the yeah. field is white, all ready to recruit. <laughs> I wish. In my day, they thought we were in the CIA. And I always said, hold on, you think the, two, the CIA would ride two bikes around town all day? Yeah, I'm, I'm walking around in Brazil in a suit in a <laughs> you know, really poor neighborhood. I'm like, why am I in a suit? Do we want to stick out? Yeah. Do we want to be targets? This yeah, is, you it do. could be good and bad, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we, lo- we looked nice, but we did stick out quite a bit. Well, and you smelled great, too, because, you know. Cologne. Hey, that's uh, Spencer and Jerem, folks. They're straight ahead. Four minutes from right now, you can dive into BYU Sports Nation. You're not going to want to miss it. And you can even watch it on BYU TV or radio. You can you can simulcast. You could do both. You could be on the radio and, and just turn down your volume on your TV and watch the whole thing. It's just like it's almost as close to heaven as you can get. Hey, our hero of the day is a four-year-old, uh, Michael DeMossi Jr., a four-year-old boy from Philadelphia, uh, Philadelphia, fancies himself a real-life superhero wearing a blue T-shirt with photographs of his four-month-old twin brothers who were born with rare immunodeficiency disease. Michael's little brother is Santino, they call him Sonny, and Giovanni Gio needed a bone marrow transplant, and when his parents told him, that he was a donor match. Michael told them he wanted to save his brothers and would give them uh, some of his bone marrow. Uh, hey, Michael, his mother, uh, Robin Pownall, called out as she filmed her young son early one Thursday morning in March, running ahead of, uh, of as they were getting ready to go to Children's Hospital for the procedure. Anyway, the boy did end up giving uh, bone marrow to his little brothers 
ending up saving their lives. And so we're going to make him the hero of the day. Michael DeMossi Jr., four-year-old boy from Philadelphia, bone marrow. You've heard about how horrendous that treatment is and how difficult it is. And that brave young boy did it for his brothers, Gio and uh, Sonny. So congratulations to him and really to the parents, to everybody that uh, had to go through such a difficult adventure. But boy, they'll have a great story to tell when Sonny and Gio are older. And that's the show for us, my friends. We can't do it without you, but we'll be back again tomorrow. A great uh, big announcement tomorrow on the show. You're not going to want to miss it. Uh, BYU uh, Sports Nation, though, is up next. Stick with us.